Hi there, welcome, and thank you for tuning in. My name is Jason Shoulder, and this is Learning to Fail. My guest today is Rich Scheidner. Rich is a comedian out of L.A., probably originally from New York. I'm pretty sure he's Jewish. He spells his name really weird, and we're going to get into that. I'm going to find out why. And I'm doing something I don't usually do. I'm recording this intro before I sit with Rich. I've talked to him on the phone a couple times, but I've never met him before. And I'm honestly, I'm as or more excited about this interview than any other interview I've had. And the reason is Rich has been in the comedy game for a really long time. He's been in it so long that he quit comedy and came back. He's done a lot of writing. He's been on a lot of TV shows. He's been in some movies. And he's had this really incredible career. And now he has this really fascinating project, which he's going to talk about, I'm sure, on the podcast today. And it's a stand-up show, but it's kind of a multimedia presentation, and it goes into the history of stand-up, and I really don't know anything about it, and I don't want to pretend I do, and I kind of don't want to. I want him to explain it, and I don't want to ruin it by conjecturing and being wrong. And that's something I'm good at. If you can ask my daughter, she'll tell you I'm wrong all the time. So... I'm really excited to talk with Rich today, and he's on his way here, and he said we are on our way, and I don't know who we are, because I only invited him, so I don't know if he's bringing his muscle or his bodyguard, I don't know who this guy is. Uh, For all I know, there's going to be like, you know, secret service people surrounding my house making sure nobody comes here to fuck with Rich, but I doubt it, because this is just a podcast in Asheville, North Carolina, which is a pretty safe place, and Rich ironically only lives like 10 minutes away from my house, and we were introduced by some really good friends of mine who also moved here from L.A., and he used to be a chiropractor, and then he came here and briefly did substitute teaching and hated it, and now he works in the medical field, and uh, she is a writer and now a real estate agent, and she loves doing real estate, and she's just got the most effusive personality. She's one of my favorite people in the world. They both are. Uh, he and I play guitar together. Uh, we call ourselves the Stratbergs because we both play Stratocasters, and he plays better than I do, but neither of us are great. But he's pretty good. Uh, He actually plays guitar every year at my Not Quite Kosher comedy show. He does like a nice intro thing. And while people are filing in, he just noodles around for an hour. And it's great. And so anyway, these folks are how I have met and been introduced to Rich. um, And I'm just really grateful. And I think it's really cool. And I think it's really fascinating that like I met Maggie and Steve through my friends Chris and Rick. And I met them through a friend of mine named Paula and... I haven't talked to Paula in years, but she is one of my favorite people. There's a crazy story about how Paula came into our lives, um, and and uh, I don't think she'll mind me telling this story, and she probably won't listen to it, but if she does, uh, it only comes from a loving place. <laughs> but uh, my father met Paula when he was visiting L.A., and he had lost his car in the Beverly Center, which is a gigantic shopping center, and there's this monstrous parking lot, and everybody loses their car in the Beverly Center. And this is a long time ago, and uh, my dad was walking around lost, probably carrying bags of crap, and this beautiful blonde woman stopped and said, do you need help finding your car? And I think they'd met in the elevator. Like, it wasn't super messed up. Like, I think they had already had a conversation, so she felt safe, and, and this is before people didn't feel safe or didn't say they didn't feel safe. It was, a, it was a while ago. I'm sure women have never felt safe or been safe around men, but anyway... Paula offered my dad to help him find his car, and she drove him around the parking lot until they found it. And they became friends. And uh, she actually flew to New Mexico. My dad set her up with a friend of ours who ended up being a huge problem. And she had, like, the worst time, um, which is so undeserving because she is seriously one of the finest human beings I've ever met. And I miss her. I really miss our friendship. She was a wonderful friend, very supportive of me, bought one of my paintings, used to take me out to sushi and just kind of be a great friend to me. 
And her husband is also in the entertainment business, her ex-husband now. Um, he's produced a bunch of shows and written a bunch of shows. He's extremely talented. And anyway, these guys probably all know each other from L.A. And it's just so crazy that I moved here from L.A. And then slowly these people have moved here from L.A. And they've been kind enough to introduce me to each other. And they're some of my favorite people. And they appear on my shows and the riches of my podcast today. So, up oh, there he is now. So I'm going to go get him and we will continue this conversation later. Why yeah. is your name spelled the way it's spelled? First my, of all, uh, is it really Scheidner or was it Scheidner? No, no, it, it was Scheidner, S-H-I-D-N-E-R. That's what it is. That's, legal, a, that's, legal, really that's legally, that's my name. Okay. Richie is my first name legally, R-I-T-C-H-I-E. I was named after my dad's favorite baseball player for the Philadelphia Phillies, Richie Ashburn. Oh, okay. Hall of Fame center fielder. So my mom lived next to Richie Highway in Baltimore. Okay. So that's spelled R-I-T-C-H-I-E, a last name. So she thought that's how you spell Richie put a t in there that's it that's how it is so, okay i thought maybe it was like a uh, richie valens sort of thing or something but um that was later he was later or he was born before me but he wasn't famous till later he wasn't famous till later yeah i yeah. thought maybe it was like an entertainment thing like there was another rich scheidner <laughs> and you no, were forced to i i had so many names when i first started when i first went on stage i called myself elvis de groot i called myself bud lunch I had all these names that I was, I should have gone with one of them because Rich Scheidner is, nobody's been able to spell it correctly. Yeah, it's hard to say it. Or pronounce it correctly. It's. It seems like you're getting your own name wrong. That's what it feels like. It feels like Rich Scheidner, he's, he made a mistake somewhere. Like it should his be, own name it, Yeah, it should be Rich Schneider. Or Rich, yeah, yeah, it's something yeah. I've heard of yeah, before. Yeah, yeah, It was actually Schneider originally from Germany when they came to America in the 1700s. Right. Somewhere in the 1800s, somebody got drunk and angry at somebody else in the family and said, I'm not having anything to do with those people. And they flipped some letters. That's how he got Schneider. There are only about 10 families in the whole country named Schneider. And are you all connected? Are you all from the yeah, same? Yeah, we're all related. And your family dates all the way back to the 1700s? Yeah, they got kicked out of Germany for poverty. You know, back then, Europe was emptying its debtor prisons. Oh, so it was not a prosperous crossing. They were in steerage and they landed in South Jersey and never left and never became homeowners or landowners, tenant Nothing. farmers. No, in the greatest economic boom in the history of mankind, the United States of America, penniless. we managed to stay at the bottom. <laughs> oh, congratulations. Thank you. That's fantastic. Took a lot of effort, a lot of drinking, yeah. consistent drinking. You have to really work at you, it to you, stay that poor for that long. Absolutely. <laughs> Now I'm keeping my feet up, Rich. Thanks. You yeah, inspired yeah, me. You said you can't be funny with your feet up, and uh, I'm going to see if you're right. So far, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> it was something I made up on the spot. You had this this footrest. If you want to put your feet up, you can't be funny when your feet are up. And I have no idea, but I'm going to stick with. My I know, feet. and I'm. Sorry, it's like the thing is now it's bothering because it's like it's not straight. It's making all this noise, but whatever. You make yourself comfortable, man. Um, <laughs> I am. So, okay, so how do you know, you were introduced to me uh, through our friend Steve and Maggie. Right. How do you know those guys? From Mark Lanau and Joanne Astro. Joanne was a comedian in Los Angeles, and her husband Mark was part owner of the Improv oh, okay. in, uh, in Los Angeles. And was that your main So they room? came here, so that was my main club when I went there. I also uh, worked a comedy store. Right. Uh, and um, so those were the two clubs when I moved there in 82. So how long, when did you go on stage for the first time? 77. Holy shit. There were no comedy clubs in Washington, D.C. I did a coffee house. 
There were coffee houses? The, coffee that was houses. Like, that must have been the first coffee house. Co- 77? No, 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 no. They were all over the place. The coffee houses were big. That's where most comics like Carlin and those guys in the 60s, that's where they cut their teeth. That's okay. where they were training. Coffee houses. Because that started really with Lenny Bruce and Mort Saul. Those guys were doing coffee houses in San Francisco and then oh. other places around the country. Coffee, the whole folk thing, the jazz rooms, those little tiny jazz folk rooms. Uh, the, the, you know, those were like 80-seat rooms a lot of those places uh-huh. and they were hungry eye i guess i thought they were bars they were coffee houses then okay. they got beer and wine licenses some of them but so they were doing comedy to people wired on caffeine as opposed yeah. to drunk <laughs> does that make a different kind of heckler if someone's I, on caffeine? i have a feeling they were doing some other tea okay <laughs> i think a lot of those people <laughs> i see we're doing their own their, <laughs> well, own, their own medication brew. <laughs> yeah we bring our own bring your own <laughs> <laughs> okay well it was the 70s you, know, you think we invented pills we think we invented marijuana we think you find that's always been around yeah yeah none of us invented every i mean you yeah. know everyone like one of my favorite sort of uh, road dog comedians. She's been a mentor to me. Her name is Janet Williams. I don't know if you know her, but um, she's you know she's regional, but she she definitely tours everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she's like, you know, everyone your generation, you think you invented blowjobs, you know? Like <laughs> she's like, it's fine that I. And her, she opens. She's it's like seventy, and she opens with a blowjob joke, which is so fucking hilarious. <laughs> and she's just one of my favorite people. And. <laughs> And, and she's like, it's okay to talk about sex in front of old people. Like they had sex before you did whatever you think you're doing. That's so new. Yeah. Trust me. Yeah. They did it first, yeah. you know, and yeah. don't be afraid of it. And so, uh, so I, that's always been my attitude, but half my, half my audience, especially now in this town, you know, they're in their twenties and thirties. They don't think it's funny when I talk about sex. They well, think it's at, at a certain point, they don't want to see grandpa or granny talking about blowjobs. Yeah. I'm not they don't quite want to talk. They don't want to see granny talking about eight and ass. That's the that's in my generation. We when you got edgy with that, you call it they were dick jokes. Right, you're gonna do your dick jokes. You're gonna close with your dick jokes and get out of town. Right, but now it's eating ass jokes. Those replacement <laughs> yes. dick jokes. Yeah, that's dick, the new edge. Dick is too. Yeah, it's too. It's that's too no, tame. That's not, it's too tame. It's too mainstream. Too tame. Too dick, tame. Dick jokes. And are, and and besides that, eating ass is is much more non gender specific. That's so, true. You know, that's it's, it's everyone's a, got one. Everybody can male or female. You can do transgender. Your, doesn't matter. The ass never matter. goes away. Does not matter. <laughs> <laughs> eating ass is anyone can eat or be joke. eaten that's that's the <laughs> that's great thing about ass eat. that's it that's exactly right <laughs> okay so you got started in the in 77 you went on stage in dc that was your first yeah how did it go how was your first time on stage bombed really bombed so badly bombed so badly i mean i got my first heckle it was a coffee house there were guys two guys were playing chess i start talking one of them just turns around and goes shh that was my first heckle. <laughs> I got one reaction. I got one reaction. One guy went, huh! that's it. Because I had a tape. I, st- I lost a tape somewhere along the line. I thought I had it still. But I, I lost it in one of my divorce moves. Oh. And um, uh, it, it, one guy, one guy, huh! that's it. But I, I mean, I, I got that reaction from Stranger because you know that's the whole deal. Is going from being funny in the moment around your friends right. to being funny on demand in front of strangers. So the right. fact that somebody who did not know me at all just gave me that one, huh, it was enough to bring me back a second time. Yeah, dude, I've been there. Right? I'll never forget my first laugh. I mean, I, I had my first time I went on stage. I only, I was supposed to do five minutes. I think I did three and a half. And because <laughs> I didn't want to bring my notes up on stage. I decided it was super unprofessional to bring notes. Dumbest choice I ever made for my first time no, on stage. why? Well, just because I re- didn't remember what the hell I was going to say. Like, I was thinking about Seinfeld. He said the first time he went up, he had meticulously memorized all his material. <laughs> and then he forgot every joke but he remembered like the one word that he'd written down to remind him so he went up there and he said laundry airplanes 
dinner. Good night. You know, <laughs> like, that was it. he said it lasted 30 seconds because he couldn't remember a single joke. And that was literally in my head when I was up there and I couldn't get past it. And I just kicked myself for not bringing my list up there. But anyway, I'll never forget when I got my first, I learned two things, a lot of things, but two things particularly. I opened with like a riff with something I wasn't planning to say. Big mistake for your first time on stage. Like if you've been writing, it's probably bad enough, but at least you've been working on it for a yeah, couple yeah, weeks yeah. or years or however long it's yeah. been. You know, the first thing I decided to say make no sense and nobody laughed. And then I'm like, now I've got to do material and I've already bombed in my first 10, 20 seconds on stage. Like I've already experienced bombing and I just got here. But anyway, I did, I did work my way into a joke and people laughed and I was, and it was the craziest feeling. It's like coming for the first time. Yeah. yeah, It is. It's like, all you know is I definitely want to do this again. (laughs) I'm not saying it couldn't be better. (laughs) I'm not sure I did it right. But it was enough to want to come back. And what, what year was that? It was four years ago, four and a half okay, years ago. Okay, so you're going to a place open mic where there are comedians performing. Yes. There are cus- this was not an open mic I did. This was a talent night. I followed a poet. There were singer, songwriter types. I was the only comedian. For a long time, I was going up in front of places, no comedian. I was the only person, only, only person trying to do comedy. And do you think that worked to your advantage or disadvantage? At first, definitely disadvantage. What are you doing here? And I, that's when I knew I was starting to get good when I was doing all these singer-songwriter nights around Washington, D.C., I was doing these nights, and I started getting other places to go, and then I'd come back a couple weeks later, and all the musicians were like, hey, where were you, man? We missed you. Oh, that's cool. I go, okay, I'm yeah. starting to do something that they like. And the other artists are missing you. I mean, right, that's huge. Right, right, Because normally, you know, artists aren't always supportive of no. other artists. Although all musicians, my, maybe they, they don't feel in competition with comedians. They weren't feeling in competition. I was entertaining them. It was a break in the action. They weren't going, oh, gee, I wish I'd written that line. Right song, right, right. Do you feel like there's a lot of camaraderie or more bitterness? What do you? What's been your experience with other comics? I mean, obviously, some pretty big people have vouched for you, but aside from them, there's a lot of camaraderie. There's a competitive nature to it. Absolutely, everybody. There's one microphone. We're not. That's what always cracked me up about a union. We're going to form a union. It's a pirate ship. There's only (laughs) one treasure chest. That's the microphone. Only one person gets it at a time. Yeah. Right. The room may be filled with comics, so there's only one person up on stage doing it. So there's a competitive nature to it that's that's built in. But um, I think there's a lot of camaraderie once you have the respect. And that was always important to me. I'm sure it is to you. Yeah. Is I wanted to have the respect of the other comics for what I was doing. Yeah. So that's why, you know, as if I somebody if it was a line like somebody else, I dropped so much material before I moved to New York City because I'd seen these comics. I saw Larry Miller do a long piece about his parents going out of town and he partied with his friends in the house, and then the parents coming back early and catching them. Well, I had a similar piece. Right. I just dropped it because I didn't want to go to New York City and people going, he's doing Larry Miller's right, right, party right. piece there, you know. So it, it, it was really important that, that the pe- people respected what I did to me. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's important to me too. I uh, I don't I don't I always feel like I don't get a lot of respect in this town, but when I go out of Asheville, I do great. Like. I I get along with every. It's so hard. It's like I'm not in the click here. I'm older. I'm twice the age of all these people. It's funny. There's a click anywhere you go. There's a click anywhere you go. And it's so funny. You talk to people like I'll talk to people. I mean, I'm friendly with everybody, you know, but I'll talk to them and they've slowly begun to accept me because I haven't left, you know, (laughs) like and as hard as they've pushed me around, you know, I mean, I haven't left and I do reasonably well in spite of the fact that, you know, that, uh, the comics think I'm not PC enough and whatever, but I'm like, I'm 50. I'm not going to be PC, dude. I'm not going to meet your standards of 
you know, social righteousness or whatever. What, I'm just not. What is it that they, that the, they're there? Cause every place is different. And PC is different in different, in different places. places. Well, Asheville is very their, progressive. Okay. I understand. Um, and I mean, I do a lot of relationship material and so it's inherently misogynist. It's your binary. First so, of all, yeah, binary. binary. Yeah, I'm straight white. You're straight middle-aged man. Yeah, I, like, yeah, I you, am the problem. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I used to do a thing. I'd go up on stage and I'd be like, "How many of you hate me already?" Like before I even talked, you know. Um, and but I did decide I didn't actually want to set that precedent. But I tried it once or twice. I tr- I've tried a lot of things that you know. I mean, you try them, of course. And if if they don't kill, then you drop them. You know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but especially stuff like that, I don't. You know, I don't want the crowd to doubt me. You know, like I, I have this joke I've done, which was a true story. I was, I used to get, um, before he fell from grace, a lot of people used to tell me I reminded them of Louis CK. And that was not necessarily when I was on stage, you know, <laughs> a lot of times I was overeating at a buffet, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and so, and I, and this one guy said it to me at a yoga conference and he's like, you know, does anyone tell you you remind them of Louis CK? I was like, dude, I'm so tired of people saying that. I was like, I actually am a comic. You know, I wish that they said it when I was on stage killing, you know? Like, I wish they thought I was as funny as Louis C.K. or at least a thousandth as funny as Louis C.K. And this guy's like, you're definitely a thousandth as funny as Louis C.K. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and so I've said that on stage a few times. And, and it's funny, but you actually don't want to plant the idea in the audience's head that you're not funny. Like, there's, there's self-deprecating that works and there's self-deprecating that works against you. And I always felt like that one works against me. And right now, any reference to Louis C.K. unfortunately works against you. And it's too bad. I mean, it's obviously, you know... He has some issues to work out. Yeah, still. Uh, but he's he's one of the best comics there's ever been. You know, he was very very funny. Still, probably is very very funny. Oh, he's hilarious. His I've heard that his new tour is the best stand up anyone's ever seen. Like the people who've seen it are like, I've never seen anything this good. Wow. And it's kind of kind of have to be that good. But I don't think he's pulling any punches. I don't think it's an apologetic tour by any means. And I think people would like to hear an apology from him. Because the one he wrote in the New York Times wasn't was good not enough. an apology. Yeah, it was a little bit of a humble brag. Um, <laughs> but you know, he's like, "I'm so sorry that, that, that I, I was so women, powerful." Yeah, who respected me so much? They just had so much respect. I was like, the first time I read it, I thought I was like, "This is amazing!" Like nobody else has stepped up and owned it, and he did take ownership of it. Yeah. But but then you know, I, there's a lot of criticism about it, and so I started reading it in the you know in light of that criticism. I was like, "Okay, I get it." You're like you know. And then I read it recently and I was like, wow, he really did talk a lot about how much they looked up to him. Yeah. Like, it, and I don't know who, I mean, it's got to suck to have your life ripped out from under you when you're, you're really at the top. I was a fall. Yeah. I was a, it was, that a, was a fall. And it's so funny because comics have had these falls before. Right. They've had these falls for, for far less, for far less than that. Mm. You know, Jonathan Winters had a big fall when they, they thought he was crazy. And he acted crazy on stage. If you saw Jonathan Winter's act back then, it was you go, this guy's nuts. That's what I loved him. He's crazy. Right. You're okay to be crazy on stage. Don't act crazy off stage. That hurt his career big. Uh, uh, Shelley Berman uh, was a, a subject of a documentary in, in 1963, and it was called Comedian Backstage for Network Television, NBC. Right. And in that, he he always had the receiver off the, there's a nightclub and there's a phone, pay phone in the back. So he'd take the receiver off so it wouldn't ring during his act because he had a very theatrical okay. act. Somebody put the receiver back and it rang during his act. So he came backstage and kind of took it off and sort of like, this should be on and kind of slammed it. It's sort of a little angry. Right. And oh my God, he's angry. He's an angry guy. Oh, yeah. And it hurt his career. 
Mm. The very rumor that that Jackie Mason might have flipped the bird to Ed Sullivan. He gave him the finger on that was national TV, which is not true. It didn't happen. There was a there was a thing that happened, but it wasn't. He didn't give him the finger. It, it hurt his career. It hurt his so career. So crazy. So the well, fact the yeah. fact that 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 a guy you know was masturbating in front of women, it it if it's true, it should hurt his career. Yeah. Yeah. But. There were lots of people. I mean, it's, comics are fucking weird. Comics do crazy shit all the time. Oh my god! Yeah, you sure, know, it's like sure. I mean, I I do feel like, um, I, I'm not excusing it, and I have a 12 year old right. daughter, and I wouldn't want it to happen to her, obviously, right. you know. But I mean, comics are fucked up, man. I mean, I, there's there's very few absolutely. who can have a stable conversation and like a normal social <laughs> interaction. So. And I think no, that I it's like people assume that because they're famous and interesting and entertaining that they're normal, yeah. but you're not normal. Like if you're really, especially someone who goes as deep as Louis C.K. does into the darkness of right. life, I mean that's not an unfucked up guy, right? You know, so no, he doesn't deserve to be banned for life. A proper apology would have gone a long, a way. long way, a yeah, long, long way. But that's, that's the thing; I'm not sure he knows how to do that, like. For all of his good qualities and all of his incredible, like, philosopher king essence that I think also exists, he's just still a fucked up guy. And I don't know if he knows how to apologize. And he's so huge. Like, sometimes it, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what it is. It's like, I think people get so big, they think they're beyond an apology on something. On some level, maybe, you know, they start to believe that. They believe their own grandeur. You know? Or maybe the very essence, because I'm telling you something. When I first heard this, I went, I, I've done a lot of stuff. I've done a lot of stuff with women, a lot of stuff by myself. I never thought of that. <laughs> First of all, I'm not that proud of my dick. I'll be afraid to pull it out and start jerking off and her going, what do you got? What is that? What is that? Your thumb? What, what are you doing? Oh, Jesus, that's a dick. You know, but I never thought that this was not in my, ever in my fantasy of anything. It'd yeah. be cool to do or something. So I don't know what's behind that. Yeah. So the very what's behind that might be what's keeping him from apologizing. I don't know. I'm not mm. a shrink, but what's behind him wanting to do something like that might be what's keeping him back from apologizing properly. I don't know. No, I think that's a good point. I mean, I think I think all that stuff comes from the same place, right? I yeah. mean, like the art and the sickness, they have they're they're in the same cell, you know, and they manifest simultaneously. Like, look, I can't, you know, I I can't separate the art from the artist. You can't. No, not really. Not so, really. like Picasso. Ca so Picasso, yeah, yeah. That's, I, I'm not a real big fan. I'm not, I'm not a big I, fan of who's a person. You saw Hannah Gatsby's special. Yeah, yeah. Stunning, fantastic, right? stunning. I don't understand why everyone's so critical of it. Because they're asshole. I mean, I don't. I don't think. I don't see that as like a hyper progressive piece that people who want to do non PC comedy, which is definitely me, you know think that that's not comedy. I thought that was one of the most brilliant and it's personal a, and vulnerable things I've ever seen. I thought seen it was in my a direct line to Lenny Bruce. Mm. social commentary at its best the way she wrapped it up at the end with the 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 male empowerment or or, or i would say male privilege or whatever mm -hmm. uh and and art and everything the way she wrapped it up was yeah. beautiful i think anybody who can make art history funny is a fucking <laughs> genius like yeah. that's never been done. I mean, talk no. about breaking ground. No. <laughs> you know, whoever would have thought that I know, yeah. that, that could yeah. be funny, but it was, it was, it was not, it was funny. It was, it was brilliantly funny. Yes. And it was deep and it was educational. Like you were yeah. learning, like it was crazy. I, I, I've seen it three times and I'm just mesmerized by it. Mm. Just that whole ending, just that whole wrapping it up. So I don't know. I don't know. Do you, can you separate Bill Cosby from, from 
from his uh, art? Can well, you go? Can you listen to Cosby's albums now? Can you? Because the Lenny Bruce said, if you lose the trust of the audience, it's over. And he completely lost the trust. Who he projected himself to be, like Louis C.K. projected himself to be a really messed up guy with some weird fantasies. Now we find out. The fantasies weren't so much fantasies. Mm. The, these were weird things he was actually doing in life. Right. Right. So if that's possible, he did this, maybe he might do that. Maybe he might. So then it becomes sort of like mm. you're not a guy who's really holding back, which is where the funny is. Right. Right. A guy who's got these weird urges, but he doesn't. He talks about them in a funny way, right. but he doesn't do them. Cosby was this father figure type. Yeah. Now you find out he's drugging women and raping them. Using that father like he was an absolute wolf in sheep's clothing. Yeah, you know, oh, you can let your daughter hang around with Bill Cosby. He's America's father. Right. He's a he's a father figure. You know, he's a national icon. He's a, we all trust him with the sweaters and everything, and and found out you couldn't. So, I, I all his comedy collapsed to me. First of all, this is more sacrilege than anything. I was. I never loved Bill Cosby's comedy. That's okay. Like, I just, and I'll tell you what I didn't like is that I never, and everyone has their thing that they don't think is funny. And my thing that I don't think is funny is beating children. And he has too many jokes about beating kids. Oh, I hate that. You know? I and do. I do. And like, and it's not that I think he shouldn't be allowed to do, like, forget all, just for the moment, yeah. forget all the, 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 the drugging and raping for a second, just the comedy. Like, I don't think anybody should not be able to talk about whatever they want. I'm all for everything being talked about on the stage. Personally, I don't find beating children funny. I just don't. And so I, so, you know, and I think it's a very cultural thing. I think there's a lot to it that, that, you know, I just don't connect with. And so I, but I just never, because of that, I just never found him that hilarious. I did love the Cosby show. And, but because I didn't revere him, and I know I should, but as long because I never revered him as a comic, it wasn't very hard for me to let him go when I found out that he was also a rapist. And even if I had drugging and raping people, that's really fucking awful. Yeah. Jerking off in front of people is fucked up and uncool. But it's not. It's a, it is a great distance from drugging and raping oh, people. It's I, not. A, you I'm not going to argue with you about that. No, yeah. no, not it's, at all. I mean, I and I feel like these days, like I can get in trouble for just voicing that. Like I could get canceled just for voicing that opinion, which is right. scary to me. Right. You know, it's like, but can, I just want to be able to talk. Can we just slow down for a second? I mean, obviously you and I can, but as a group, can we slow down for a second and have a conversation about these things? Because. Otherwise, we we really can't get anywhere. Like the the extreme virtue signaling and everything that goes on now, there's a there's an intolerance to that that's every bit as damaging as the stuff it's intolerant to, and and I actually think it's worse. I think the biggest problem in the world is intolerance, and everything else is is a byproduct of that. You know, people say racism is the biggest problem. Racism is a byproduct of intolerance. The intolerance is the problem, and racism is a symptom, and it's a awful symptom. I mean, I'm not I'm not, <laughs> I'm not like. Yeah. I'm not trying to downplay how wrong. I'm just using that as an example. Um, anyway, so, you know, uh, and, and personally, of course, I felt a great affinity for Louis C.K. So it was really hard for me to watch him fall the way he did. And and it was hard for me to. And I think his, I think the timing and I think I think there were a lot of things that worked against him. Um, and I hope that I would love it if he did apologize in the way that would be satisfactory to people. Um, and. 
what I will say for him is he will claw his way back because he is a comic. He is a comic through and through. No question. And whether or not he's ever beloved globally the way he was, uh, that may not happen, but it also may not just, it just may not matter as far as he will continue to do his art form. And I respect the shit out of that. You know, people don't have to go and I don't, I will understand they're not going like, I will never fault anybody for not wanting to see him, but I do respect the fact that he will continue to be a comedian and, and that, you know, that's like a, a, a separate thing for me. Um, but I mean, I guess if Co- I, I mean, Cosby drugged and violently raped people like that, that's a, that's really different to me for a long period of for time, for a long period of long time. Period yeah. Of time. Now he did it in a time where Spanish fly was a thing, you know, like it was, never, it, it was funny. It was a thing that I heard when I was in junior high, mm. it was a thing that you heard. And even then not knowing anything, I I was suspect to go, really? There's a drugging of women that will make them want to have sex with you? All right. Why is this not everywhere? Why is this? <laughs> if this was truly true, men would be marketing it. It would be Philip Morris would put it in cigarettes. I mean, it would be put everywhere. Since yeah. the men are running everything, they right. would have that drug in every possible food product. Right. Pancake mix would have <laughs> Spanish fly in it. They would want women to have sex all the time whenever yeah. they wanted to have sex. So that, that it seems suspect to me then. Mm. So, but the fact that he was intrigued by it, it, you look back, everybody said that first thing I thought of was that I knew that, I knew all of his material. Mm. Look, he was huge. I've seen him in concert a couple of times. I've been backstage. He, he would do an hour and a half of stories backstage and walk on stage and do another two and a half hour show. Wow. I mean, that was his warm up. It was like an athlete stretching before running. Wow. He would sit backstage with eight or nine people sitting around in a circle around him and he would just do stories and you could prompt him. I mean, he one day I was backstage and I, I knew a lot about him. So I was prompting, didn't you used to work strip jo- strip joints, you know? And right. he'd be like, oh, he'd go into strip joint stories, you know? And then he'd look, kind of looked at me and I'd go, and didn't you used to sell newspapers when you were a kid? And he'd, <laughs> boom, he'd go in, you know, he, I was just like tossing him balls for him to hit out of the park, batting practice. And then he goes on stage in just another two and a half hours talking about nothing he just talked about. Wow. So it was, he was, I, 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 like a lot of comics, idolized him. I could tell you stories. I mean, Jeff Foxworthy, the first time he was headline in Las Vegas, he gets a phone call and it's Bill Cosby, who's also in Vegas going, got your name above the shrimp. Because <laughs> it was always like whether the comic was bigger than a shrimp cocktail for 75 cents. Right, right, right. That, that. Got your name up on top. <laughs> and he took him to dinner. Cosby took Foxworthy to dinner as a young comic and schooled him on Vegas. Oh, wow. And, cool. and, and so he was very generous to other comics and he was, but it, that all was like, you know, you can, that's all great, but there's this one thing over here that takes all that away. Yeah, well, it's mean, a pretty big know, one. Right? It's a pretty big one. It's like going, oh, it's like a guy was Jeffrey Dahmer. You know, Jeffrey Dahmer's a great stand-up. Everybody <laughs> loved him, but he was killing and eating people. You can't <laughs> overlook the killing and eating people. <laughs> it's really hard. Yeah. But people overlook, I mean, they overlook Picasso. They, I mean, do they overlook Picasso? I well, feel Picasso like was do. an absolute misogynist. You know that? He was He was going after his whole, well, we heard the Hannah Gatsby thing. I didn't know as much about him as yeah. she knew and yeah. she laid it out there. Yes. I heard he used to, uh, he used to pay for his meals by writing a check. You know, and the meal was like three seventy five, and and he's like, you can either cash that check or you can hang on to it. Got my signature, and one day it'll be a lot more than three seventy five. You know, That's so that was how strategy. he ate for free. <laughs> I don't know if it's true, but I love it. That's a great strategy. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, 
So, okay, you have this incredible project you're doing. You're obviously like beyond to call you a student of comedy is like an understatement. So talk to me a little bit about this tour you're doing and what's the, this is how we originally were introduced. Sure, sure. Yes. So I'm fascinated to hear about it. Yeah, I, I call it America's Reflection in the Funhouse Mirror. It's a history of stand-up comedy. Okay. It's not the history. It's a history I really talk about the big acts, how they changed comedy, how comedy was changed by technology, how things changed, what comedy said about America at any particular point. Because I think Amer stand-up comedy is the most reflective art form. In real time, you could look at the jokes and see what America's obsessed about, what it's fearing, what it, what it you know, you can see the zeitgeist in America through reflected in jokes. So that kind of, that's what the, the show's about. And I go through the beginning, it's an original American art form. I, I talk about the first stand-up comic who was an American, a guy named Artemis Ward. Okay. I talk about him and what he did and then just move along the line and keep coming. So uh, it, it talks about the future, you know, not the future, but I mean, it talks about the present, right? But I don't focus as much on that as I do on people in the past. And how many of these people? Like the podcast, okay? This is the equivalent of record albums in the 50s and 60s. A way to market yourself to get an audience, to right. get people to be aware of what you're doing. That's what record albums were for for Lenny Bruce or Mort Saul or any of those guys, Jonathan Winters, they these Bob Newhart, these records reached a young audience when TV wouldn't let them on. So uh -huh. you could do an end run around the networks with this, the podcast. Right. But it's totally different because people are listening individually. And though back then they were party albums. So people would gather around in a dorm when one person had a stereo and an album and they'd all listen to it together. Like a little audience. You know, Facebook has started this thing called watch parties where you can like, you can watch a video and you start a watch party and then your friends can join your watch party and watch it with you. I wonder if it's like a throwback to that in a way. It sounds like a little. How, how does that work? I mean, I mean, how well does it work or functionally? Yeah, yeah. How does it, how's it, work? How's it work? I don't know. My girlfriend did a live. She does uh, ukulele Friday. She does a live broadcast of her playing ukulele. She does like three songs. And so um, I wanted to help her. And so I promoted it on my page and I did a watch party and I had like seven or eight friends watch. It was the first time they didn't know it was going to happen before then. So amazing. I feel like that's, you know, a small success. Amazing. I've thought about go, doing my comedy live on Facebook, but I just don't want to take the risk. Like, you know, I've already gotten in trouble for things I've said on stage and I've just been misquoted. I don't necessarily want it to be like, you know, cut and pasted. Like people will take something out of context and I say some horrible shit and they'll just put that up there and that suddenly defines you and you're done. You know, it's too early in my career for me to be done. Like, you know, I'm like, I even said that I got on stage once. I was like, do me a favor. Let me build something before you take it away from me. You know, like the, so, cause well, I've been on stage and people have been, you know, they'll FaceTime me, they'll FaceTime me, they'll Facebook me, not FaceTime me, they'll Facebook live me or they'll just shoot a video of me and do something like, Please don't do that. Very like, different. You know. I never had that fear. I could try all sorts of different things, and I tried all sorts of different things. And you could work them out. We never worried about people recording. The biggest fear we had was somebody jotting down jokes and selling them to somebody else. Right. That was you'd see somebody in the audience with a pen and a paper. You'd be like, "What are you doing?" Uh, you know, you catch guys in New York or L.A. especially. You know, they were fencing jokes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, then some big store would buy them, and you go, hey, you've got my joke. He goes, I don't know. I bought it from a writer, man. I don't know about your joke. Uh, right. And of course, then you've, you've lost it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so it. everybody's worried about that. Right. Nobody's worried about being recorded, put on Facebook, out of context, social media, the death of your career. That was never a factor. You could try all sorts of things. And it did. I did try all sorts of things, characters, and, and, and yeah, stuff that would be like, eh, you know. 
So I haven't, um, forgive me, but I haven't seen your act. And I kind of deliberately didn't over-research you because I wanted to have like a yeah. fresh conversation. Yeah. Um, how, what is your act like now? I mean, right now you're touring the show, which you're doing this history. But even so, like how does, do you, without well, spoiling it, how does I talk that? about, the, the show itself is, that's all stand-up history. It's not my, I do one, maybe two stories that are relevant from my life. Okay. I, I, I was there when Andy Kaufman first did Wrestling Women. At That's, the Improv in New York City in wow. 1981. So I was the MC, then I became the manager for the women. I was all part of it. And that just shows what he was doing because he, he again, reflected a particular time. Right. right. He came along and it was big right after Watergate and Vietnam ended. And America was so cynical at that time and didn't trust anything. And he played off that. He played with people's heads. And he did such a... People loved it yeah. when they realized what he was doing to them. But they didn't get it at first. And people were like, you're not going to fool me again. I got fooled by Vietnam. I got fooled by Watergate. I'm not getting fooled by anything again. And he's like, oh, yeah? Watch this. And he would mess with the audience's head. I mean, so he was, talk about a ballsy comedian. Right, I mean, right, totally. And there was a guy before him named Lord Buckley who did the same sort of thing. Oh, really? He would, yes, Lord Buckley would fuck with the audience's like unbelievable stuff he did. He did a thing where once he was, he was Al Capone's favorite one of his favorite comedians in chicago in the 1920s during prohibition so al capone opens up a club Shea buckley lord buckley's club his own club nightclub the first night lord buckley's a winger he does he's not a guy who brings material he goes hey, he's just always winged it right. so he goes what am i gonna do he gets out there and he starts talking and rapping and his double talking all he gets all the women that these are all gangsters with their girlfriends. Right. He gets the women to give him their fur coats. Get all the fur coats up onto the stage. Pile fur coats. Just a pile of fur coats. Then he gets lighter fluid and he's pouring and he's talking the whole time doing his whole rap about possession, blah, blah, blah. And he then he lights them on fire, lights the pile of fur coats on fire. They start burning on stage. Everybody's screaming and going crazy. And he goes back to the bar and he's laughing. He's the, everybody's laughing. And the bartender goes, Al's laughing. I wouldn't want to be here when he stops laughing. Lord <laughs> yeah. Buckley ran out of the club, ran down to the train station, jumped on the train, went to New York City. The never, end of the club. Never One came night back. club. Never came. Oh never did God. a second night. Holy shit. So, I mean, there were, there were guys like that always. And I, I don't talk about my my act, my act, my act. I don't put, any, put much effort into my stand-up act anymore. I just stories about what's happened in my life, mostly my wife, the same thing. It's funny how it changed when I was... Back in the '80s, when my you know one of the sort of like the big meat of my stand-up career, I was talking about men and women. Mm. Men are this, women are that. Right. Those generalities they don't want to hear today. Yeah, you know, yeah, younger yeah. people are like, we're not that you know. And the and the fact of the matter is, they aren't as um, the roles are not as defined as they were in my time. Yeah, you know. So it's so that that was different. But if I go in an older crowd, it's still relevant to them. It just depends the crowd. These days, I mean, everyone's offended by everything. And it's I'm just the, like, you just I, I, can't uh, win. Outrage is the new delivery system for adrenaline. Say you, that again? Outrage is the new delivery system for adrenaline. I really Everybody like loves to be outraged. Get you all riled up. I'm outraged. I'm outraged. So find something to be offended by yeah. is a way to you to get a little bit adrenaline. Get a little bit like, Argh. you know, instead of uh, going out and hiking a mountain or something, it's much easier. Sit at home, go on Facebook, be offended by things. And if that gives a rush, I didn't think about the adrenaline. It's a rush. rush. Yeah. It's a rush. It's adrenaline's and that's a rush. So instead of doing something that might cause a little fear and you get on a, a roller coaster, you can sit at home on Facebook and be offended by things. And people love to be noticed for that too. Yeah. I mean, there's oh, yeah. there's a whole thing. That, this used to happen all the time. So you say something and 
in the crowd back in the day, right. back in my time, 80s, 90s. After the show, somebody comes up. Hey, you know, you did a thing about airplane crashes. Man, I lost my cousin in an airplane crash. It kind of bothered me. It's okay, man. I got, got what you're saying. I can't pull the audience. These are just jokes, you know, yeah. and, and I understand, you know. Um, now, in real time, you do that joke. Guy screams out, I don't like that joke. Right. People think the whole show's about them because everybody, nobody has training as a crowd anymore. Mm. I grew up, there was one TV in your house, right? Everybody watched the TV together. You learn how to be an audience. Ah. Keep your mouth shut to the commercials, right? Right. You don't. You know what I mean. So now it's like people. Are, it's all. Uh, my daughter calls her generation three screen TV. Three screen generation. She says we're the three screen generation. We got our iPhone out. We got our iPad out, and then we got the TV in front of us. We're watching three different things at once sometimes. Yeah. And that everything's done individual. Like I said, the podcast. It's all done. Right. Uh, you talk about these Facebook things, but people are doing it individually at home, right? And that there's a feeling of anonymity, like in like, like um, like road rage. You know, there's you you do road rage because you get angry at the person you're there and never see them again. So there's right. a sense of anonymity, and that is that lies your power, right? Yeah. That you never have to deal with them again. It's the same thing on social media. A lot of times, were you in LA when people were shooting each other on the freeways? Yeah, sure. Like that road rage didn't stay so contained for a while. Like no. you'd yell at someone, you'd flip them off, they'd right. shoot you. Right. That was it. I remember I had this roommate who moved out from Boston and he had moved out to be a producer and he had some learning disabilities and stuff. And, and, uh, and he just, he had a producer's mentality. He was always just like, he paid me all the electric bills on the day the electric bill was due. I'm like, that's when I have to pay it. Can you please get me the money five days or like, and that was back when you had to mail a check, you know? And it's like, do you understand what you're doing? Like, yeah. he's like, oh, I'm sorry. You know, you said it's doing the 15th. I'm like, yeah, to the electric company. Yeah. So just imagine he pushed everything in that super annoying way, you know, that, that makes for a great effective producer, right? He just <laughs> sucks everyone dry and gets the film made. I'm like, dude, if you we die live on together. the 14th, he doesn't have to pay it on 15th. Yeah, right. <laughs> he's waiting until the last second. Yeah, yeah, you never know. Like, maybe <laughs> Jason's he's, still alive. All right, I'll send him the check. Maybe he can save $35 and, you know, I can die. Yeah. So we were going refrigerator shopping when he moved in, you know, and... We were we what we drove out to North Hollywood. It's not a great part of North Hollywood. And you figure going to an appliance repair place. Turns out it was like next to a strip club that was still open at a at like eight in the morning. You know, <laughs> and whoever's still getting lap dances at eight in the morning, they have not had a good night. And 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 uh, we pull into the parking lot, and this jeep full of guys pulls in, and they are ready to murder him. You know, and I'm like, what's going on? You know, and I'd lived in L.A. for a while. I'm like, what's going on? I'm like, this guy called us an asshole and flipped us off. And we're going to fucking kill him. And I was like, OK, first of all, he's an idiot. He's from Boston. That's what they do in Boston. He doesn't realize that in L.A. you do that and someone will kill you. He doesn't know that. And uh, they're like, well, you better explain it to him. I'm like, I just did. Like he could hear this conversation. And I'm really sorry. We're just here to buy a fridge. Just do me a favor. Cut us some slack on this one. And, uh, you know, hopefully he's learned his lesson. And and so they left, luckily, because they really were going to fucking murder him or beat yeah. him within an inch of his life. In hindsight, I wish I'd let them. Like, this guy was such a prick. <laughs> I hated living with him. And But, you know, at the time, I didn't know better, so I defended him. And uh, But, you know, he's like, well, what's the matter with those guys? I'm like, what's the matter with you? Like, are you insane? You don't, you're not from here. You know, don't, Joe, don't walk into another city on the other part of the Boy. side of the country and just act however the fuck you want. Yeah. Like... Next time, I will let them kick your ass. 
are we clear? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And uh, you learn that as a comic on the road, how to act in different places, how to check out, find out what's going on before you open your mouth. Oh, yeah. You like, learn that. Like, give me some examples. You know, all the time. You go into, you go into the South. You know, you, the first time going to the South, going, okay, let's see what's going on here before I start, you know, putting my Yankee stuff going on. Yeah. You know, the, you, you, every place is different. And say like Los Angeles, people don't understand how much time Los Angeles, you know, spend in their car right. and how. Eventually they snap. It's not, you're not the guy just because you cut them off at that moment. There's been 15 other incidents up to that point. Right. That's the camel. That's the straw. Yeah. That's the broken back. Yeah. And you just happen to be that time. I've gotten, I've been in fist fights on, on the freeway. I'm not a freeway, we're in the streets of Los Angeles. Really? My, my four-year-old daughter has a story. Well, she's not four years old anymore. She was four years old in the car. And I got out and this other guy, this black guy, and I started change, just started punching each other. Started swinging, started fighting. Jesus. And we both, unfortunately, you know, or fortunately, weren't very good. And we probably missed more than we hit. And after a while, we both got tired and got back in our cars and left. <laughs> and that was it. And nobody called anybody anything. Yeah. It was just a bunch of punches thrown. And, but it was insane over something stupid. I, I can't even remember what it was. It doesn't matter. Right. But I've also had that experience of, like, you see the person again, right? You'll see yeah. them again, right? And uh, uh, I had to go speak at this, this place, a, a meeting, Right. And I got into a road rage thing driving over to it because I was a little late. Because I always liked to be a little late so I could drive like, get the adrenaline, be road warrior. <laughs> I'm late, out of my way. I get there and this guy and I have been like back and forth just fingering each other, you know, and just come pull over. And I'd pull over and he'd drive off laughing and the same thing. Then he right. says, go pull over and he'd pull over and I'd drive, you know, just. And I get to the place, I'm sitting up front, I'm gonna speak, and this guy walks up and says, I can't wait to hear what you gotta say. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. Yeah. Right. I, have a, I have a bit like that um, where I, I talk about, you know, my daughter and I got stuck behind a car, and when the light turned green, he, didn't, he refused to go. You know, and I was like, normally I tap on my horn, but he had a bumper sticker that said, honk if you love Jesus. <laughs> you know? And I'm not abandoning 5,000 years of cultural and spiritual heritage. Just to get my daughter to school on time, you know, and, uh, you know, and so like we get in a road rage incident, me and this guy, you know, and he waits for the light to turn yellow and he flips me off and he takes off and lays rubber on the road and we get to school and we're late, you know, and they send it to the principal's office and I'm like, and the, and the guy's like, would you mind explaining to me why you're late, Mr. Shoulder? And I was like, well, I would have been on time, but I didn't want to honk. And then you flip me off, you know, and, uh. No. So, I mean, it didn't happen, but that's the joke. <laughs> you know, everybody loves it. Like, you know, suddenly it's the principal of the school. It's the principal so, of the school. Um, yeah. You know, and I had this like stuff that went on that, that, that just, I actually think it's like the most interesting part of the joke, but it just doesn't land as funny in the South. But I'm like, you know, usually I go into the joke and I talk about how there's like a bunch of church streets in every part of town. There's a million churches. I'm like, there's no Temple Street. The Jews don't want you to know what street we're on, you know, and I told that joke. And then there was that fucking incident in Philadelphia or, or I think it was Philly, right? Where somebody walked into the synagogue and like Pittsburgh. massacred a bunch of in Pittsburgh, massacred a bunch of people. Um, and I told that joke a few days later at a party mm -hmm. and everyone's and not even I don't think there's a single Jew at this party. It was the waspiest fucking party I've ever been to. Although the wife of the host was Jewish and um, and everyone's like too soon. I'm like, I wrote this joke before that happened. I'm sorry. Like, yeah. you know, it, it, yeah, yeah. I was like, and I, and there was a bunch of old people and I was like, you millennials are so sensitive. <laughs> you know, they were all sex susceptibilarians, you know? And, uh, but it was just like, it's just the culture, you know, everyone's so upset. Um, anyway, then I would I'd come back to the church thing. I'd be like, you know, he's, I said, I'm not ready to accept Jesus as my Holy Lord and savior. And he's like, your daughter goes to 
a Christian school. I'm like, no, she goes to a public school on church street, you know? And to me as a Jew in the South, that's a profound statement. Nobody here laughs, you know, but it's like, it's exactly what it feels like. Are you Jewish? No, you're not Jewish. Okay. My wife is. Your wife is. My right. first wife is Jewish you're, too. You sounds like you got a, a few divorces in your. How many? Uh, two divorces is my third wife. Uh, it's, it's your third wife. Okay. Yeah. Uh, my dad's been married three times and divorced three times, and I refer to his third wife as his second second wife. <laughs> like to me, there are there's just there's a first wife and everyone after that is a second wife. You That's know. That's funny. And because they're all second marriages as as they play out. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, his his first second marriage was was pretty brief. But uh, I have a great brother from it. So my um, first um, wife was comedian Carol Liefer. So oh yeah, was, I know who she is. Yeah. So the first time we were playing the South together, Atlanta, Georgia, at the Punchline, mm. it's like '82. So we're flying south, and she's like, "You're going to do the whole show. I'm five minutes tops because there are no Jews here. I'm going into the South." Right. And she had visions of like you know the Klan singing yeah, yeah, sure. for a row. I said, there are Jewish people down here. You know, they believe me, they've always been here. You know, they've always been Jewish people in the South. She says, no, no, no. So we pull into the parking lot of the hotel right by the club, and there's a Jewish deli. Right <laughs> there's, there. There's, yeah. there's, there's Hebrew writing above the <laughs> deli. I said, you feel better now? She goes, a little bit better, but I'm telling you, it's not, not going to work. It's not going to work. And the first time she's on stage, she's, you know, does some little joke about that. And the audience roars with laughter because early on, especially a lot of comedy clubs, it was a heavy Jewish audience. Jewish people were bigger fans of comedy than anybody else. Right. So before it became so widespread and so popular, a lot of the clubs that open in town, you'd have a heavy Jewish audience. I don't care where it was, Montreal, wherever I went, you could see it. Yeah. You know, they were bigger fans of comedy than anybody else. And I, then I couldn't get off stage. You know, she was supposed to do 25 and 45. She's like, well, I guess she's headlining second tonight. I'll just clean up whatever's left. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. I, I've actually been working on a bit like right now. I've just got the premise down. But this whole idea that uh, that humor is cultural appropriation from the Jews, like Jews invented humor and everybody else is stealing <laughs> it from us, you know. And uh, but it's hard as a as a white male. It's hard to do anything <laughs> Like where you're the victim of cultural, cultural appropriation, appropriation you're you know? Not on yeah. That one. yeah, yeah, They're not letting you on that no, train. No, they're not. They're not going to give it to me. <laughs> Let me but, see your ticket, there, buddy. But I feel like I feel like there's something there. Like it's a funny idea, and I got to figure out how to make it something the audience will go on that ride with me. Do you have? Do you, have you done any research? And uh, I know there are a lot of puns in the Old Testament. Mm. Have you found out if there are any puns in the New Testament? I, yeah, Let's I, find out what the ratio is. Let's just put it this way. In the Old Testament, we out-humor you 15 to 1. <laughs> Does that tell you anything? And your puns were stolen from our puns. You're doing the same puns we did in the Old Testament. So if you could, if you, if you could back it up with that. Yeah, I, I got to have, have some evidence. You know, I don't think that the uh, religious people are going to be the ones who are offended. I think it's going to be the people who are actually in oppressed actually they're not it's not even the people who are in oppressed groups it's the people who stick up for people right. who are in oppressed groups who feel like the oppressed are too disenfranchised to stick up for themselves which is a whole issue in and of itself that i also want to tackle on stage one day but i just have to figure out how to be really fucking funny about it because unless you're hilarious about this shit right your career is over you know yeah yeah and yeah but i really believe it like i remember i got on stage recently and there was this white guy in the audience with a t-shirt that said fucking white people and I asked him on stage, I said, I was the first person to go up that night. I was like, your shirt says fucking white people. Is that, are you saying it ironically? Like fucking white people? Or are you saying it like, you know, white power? Like fucking white people, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and he's like the first one. I said, your girlfriend's white. 
You know, is that your girlfriend? It's like, yeah, she's white. She's like, no, she's Puerto Rican. I'm like, oh, you're Puerto Rican. She's like, yeah, this is, she's like, I'm, I'm French Puerto Rican. There's a huge French people, you know, contingency in Puerto Rico. I'm mm-hmm. like, so you're white. Like you're not Puerto Rican. You're French. You just happen to grow up in Puerto Rico. Like, are you a hundred percent? She's like, I'm hundred percent French. I'm like, the French are white, you know, <laughs> unless you're Algerian, in which case that's a separate issue. You know, like he just calls the breakup. Yeah, He's I, like, I got to, I got to break up with you. Like, why? Because I got to have some color in this yeah, relationship. Yeah, you're, you're I'm white already white. I got this t-shirt. I can't drop the t-shirt. It's my whole thing. Yeah, and I have a real issue with that t-shirt. Like, yeah. I don't think a black guy would walk into a black club with a shirt that says fucking black people. You know, like, yeah. I don't think, or there's another version that I won't say, but like that, I don't think people, would, I don't think they would do that. Like, they're not going to, it's the epitome of white privilege to wear a t-shirt that says, I hate myself for being white, you know, like <laughs> you can do that he when can, you're, when you're in control, the when country, you're in control, you can, you do, can do that, you know, yeah, it's, it's like, self-deprecating material a little bit, but that's not self-deprecating. That's like, <laughs> that's virtue signaling about like, I'm against myself. Ah, okay. I you see know? what you're saying. It's not self-deprecation is fine. Yeah. This is like he is trying to improve his status in the conversation by saying, hey, man, I'm I not with those people. Yeah, I hate white people, yeah, too. Yeah. Like, Fuck you. You're white. You know, like you have the luxury of saying that. That really bothered me. And I haven't figured out. But I do want to talk about it. I haven't figured out how to make it hilarious. But but I do think that there's something in this like Bill Bill Burr could do it. And I'm just not at his level. But he's the guy who could take this on, you know, and think about that, you know, and like and and really get into it in a way that he would find the hilarity. And he's not afraid to piss people off and he's made a career out of it. But he's because he's so good. He's, he's so good. He's 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 so good. Yeah. I have a thing where, you know, you go back to the humor and Jewish people and humor. Yeah. They did a study in 1978 it was in Time magazine. This guy named Dr. Janice, I think his name was did a study of all the comedians back then, stand-up comics, and found that about 80% of them were Jewish at that time. And the Jewish population was what, about 3% of the right. United States population was Jewish. So there was a, a I think besides the, the training ground of the Catskills or whatever, there were, there were some reasons, and there were books written about it, of why the Jewish people are so good at humor, were so good at... At, at, obviously, it's portable. You can take it with you. Mm. you know, nobody yeah, can right. take you. Don't That's mean? the one we got to leave. We got to leave now. Yeah, right. We take the that outsider status is always good for comedy mm. to have an outsider status outside the power structure. Right. Uh, 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 storytelling is huge in the Jewish tradition, and I think challenging the dogma, the what is presented to you as the truth at the moment, isn't that part of the Jewish? Sort of, uh, you sit around and challenge what the what is 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 accepted right then as the as the um, whatever religious principles or whatever. Sort of challenging it is is what stand up comedy is about, right? Challenging the accepted truth of the moment, right? To find out a hidden truth, isn't that part of the the Jewish tradition? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't consider myself an expert on the Jewish tradition, in spite of being steeped in it for generations. But it's like, you know, we are encouraged to question God. There you are. And not question God like, ah, God, you know, who the fuck do you think you are? It's not that. It's not It's not a disrespect. Right. It's, well, what do you mean by that, you know? Or if you're saying this thing, God, like what? what's really behind it? Like what, what and, and so there is, there is like an acknowledgement of the supremacy of God. And God's like, hey, I'm, I'm, here, I'm available. Let's talk about it, you know? And, and. 
So you are encouraged to question it, but you're not encouraged to disrespect. And there's a huge difference, in my opinion. And I think this distinction and this uh, uh, discernment is missing from the conversation today about, you know, what's the difference between exploring an idea and, and, and digging around in it and disrespecting the person that you're talking to or the person you're talking about, you know? And it's like, there's a lot of flagrant, you know, atheism these days. And atheists are just as religious, if not more than born again Christians, you know, but their religion is there is no God. And one of my favorite marquee signs I saw in LA was on some church that said, if there was no God, there could be no atheists, you know? And I loved it. Like, right. that's a, that's a great way to throw it back. At they them. can't prove there is no God any more than you can prove there is a God. Exactly. Nobody knows anything. That's one of the first things, uh, you know how you remember like one or two things from college, right? religion 101 class, professor comes in, religion is just a system of beliefs to explain the unknowable. I went, okay, I got it now. Now we can talk about it. Now we can talk about it. Right. So there's really, nobody knows anything, right. but you have to find something. I think Carl Jung said, if God did not exist, it would be necessary for man to create God. Right. So you gotta have this, because what's the big question? Where do we come from? Why are we here? And where are we going? Yeah. Yeah. So religions attempt to explain those things. And and then where religion, you know, for people who religion fails them, there's self-help, right? There's like, there's the, the landmark forum and they yeah. say life is empty and meaningless and it's empty and meaningless that it's empty and meaningless, you know? And then like, and so, and from their perspective, now we can start a conversation. Now we can, yeah, that's good. It's the same thing. It's you good. Know? Ricky Gervais has a great line. Uh, he said, you know, there are 3,000 gods and all of them are wrong except, except yours. yours. <laughs> you know? You know? And it's like, yeah, that's perfect. Yeah. And, uh, and Bill Burr does a great thing about it too, where he's like exploring, he's like got a kid now and he's exploring, you know, maybe he should get a little religion in his life. And, 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 you know, he's like, oh, I was Catholic. So, you know, fuck it. I'll, I'll go to church, you know, like I figure, and he's like, but well, well, what makes my God so good? And, and it's like, he goes to this whole thing, which is a, like a longer version of that very quick one, one liner that Ricky Gervais just said, you know, and, and it was so good that I let my daughter listen to it and it's filled with profanity and, it, and, and it's and not just profanity language, but it's like, you know, it's, it's, uh, what's the word when something's against God not profane, but what's, what's the word? Ugh. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm slipping. Yeah. But you know what I'm talking too. about? Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll come up with it when it's no longer relevant to the conversation. Anyway, heretical. So, it's yeah. Heret heretical. Heretical. <laughs> <laughs> That's closer. Yeah. When you said against God, you know the first thing that came out. Blasphemous. Mind. That's blasphemous. the word I was looking there for. There you are, blasphemous. Yeah. My first image was somebody burning at the stake. Yeah, that's I, the image that came to my mind before I got the word heretic. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, but blasphemous, that's the word. That's the word, yeah. Oh, right. blaspheme God. So I let my, wanted my daughter to hear it because she likes, she's very into science and she likes to say there's no God. And I'm like, listen, it's not okay with me for you to have that attitude. Like, you, I don't need you to believe that there's a God, but I need you to not believe that there's no God. Like I need you to be, I want you to be open to all possibilities because it's all just possibilities. And so, you know, if you're going to, if you're, if you at 11 or now she's 12 with this conversation, she was 11. I'm like, if you're going to decide at 11 that there is no God, you're too, that, that's ignorant. And there's too little that you know for you to decide that she's just, just be open. Just just remain open to possibilities so that you can because there's a sweetness to 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 life. There's a sweetness to a life where God exists. You know, and there's an emptiness to a life where God doesn't exist. 
and vice versa. There's like a way of appreciating now if you're not thinking and worried about the future, which is the God doesn't exist. And there's, you know, and then there's a, a horror to the life now if you're fearful of your future, you know? So I'm just like, I really want her to, to remain open and, and remain open to other people's ideas and recognize everything that everybody says is just another belief and none of them are particularly more right than, than others. Some are pretty wrong. Like flat earthers, they're wrong. Like, but everything else is still up for discussion. It's as far a global as movement. Yeah. It's, <laughs> someone said like everywhere somebody around said the that, world. Somebody said that we're a global movement. I go, your flat earthers is a global movement, which was perfect. It is perfect. I, I don't have your daughter read some uh, Einstein. Yeah, right. Uh, he was a believer in any creative intelligence of, uh, of the universe. The problem I have is religion, obviously, with, when we have these gods made in, in man's form. I mean, it's so funny. People always, it's so funny how people always manage to agree with their God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My God said, kill you all. <laughs> and I think, I think God's speaking the truth now. I think, I think I would phrase it. It's amazing how well people get God to agree with them. Yeah. Well, that's you basically know? what I said. Yeah, yeah I know. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. Not to be an asshole, but it's not. No. It's like. If because it's you know it's it's uh, Bob Dylan's song. I hope you know the Germans too now have God on their side. You know, and the Russian like yeah. the Germans did this. They had God on their side. I hope the Russians have God on their side. We have God on our. It's all this thing about God's on our side, right? You know, my spiritual teacher is like get on God's side. Yeah, you know, yeah. like that's that, that was, was the problem in the Civil War, right? Yeah, both sides had God on their side. Yeah, they asked Napoleon Bonaparte, who's. Because he was fighting people who obviously they right. had God on their side. Yeah. Well, whose side is God on? Napoleon says, God's on the side with the bigger guns. <laughs> <laughs> well, there, so I was dating a girl when Trump got elected. I was dating a girl up until the day after the election because <laughs> she voted for Trump. And <laughs> and and she's very. Really? Yeah, yeah. True story. And I, mean, I think we're probably going to break up anyway. But that was the final straw for me. I was just like. Um, I, I just couldn't, I couldn't take it. And she said, you know, uh, she's like, she believes in God. She's very God fearing. And, uh -huh. and, and she said, you know, listen, if God didn't want Trump to be president, he wouldn't have won. And I have a huge conversation in one of my early podcasts about this. Like I went into depth on it to where like I argued against it the whole time only to prove her right logically, you know, <laughs> and like and, and not like even in a religious way, but in like in a scientific way mm -hmm. as I could do. And as like this rational spirituality that I was kind of trained in as an adult, uh -huh. like I made her right when it was over. I was like, well, she has a point, you know, <laughs> like it, it could be true. But it's but it's, you don't know God's purpose in his victory yeah we don't know right. maybe it's, god's fucking with the whole country so i'm tired of i'm tired of the united states right i'm gonna tear that place down yeah i'm gonna break it down good somebody else him in it's time for someone else to have the bigger guns <laughs> that's it empire's over empire oh, party is finished how close do you think we are to that well every move he's made in terms of foreign policy has been independent only one country and one person putin yeah so right. if you don't if you don't understand that now you really don't understand what's going on mm. so he only cares about himself and enriching himself putin's his hero putin's got worth billions and billions of dollars on a three hundred thousand dollar a year salary right that's some wise investing there yeah 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 you know so he's he wants to do what putin's doing which is you know raid the treasury that's what the nazis did when they took over germany first thing they did was raid the treasury they mm. all got rich 
So all these nationalist movements are really about lining your pocket. Yeah. You know, you ever listen to Elvis Costello's Night Rally song? Mm-mm. Listen to that song. It's so appropriate today. Okay. Everyone's got their hands on their hearts singing, These Are the Darkest Hours. Mm. It's just a little catchy melody to get you singing in the showers. Mm. In the shower. Right? It's got double meaning on the yeah. word showers. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So. That's. I mean, I, I'm. I'm kind of cynical about the whole thing and very pessimistic. It's easy to be at this yeah, point. Yeah. yeah. But it's a white nationalist movement, the same as with the, in Germany, uh, with a patina of Christianity, slathered on there. Yeah. Look, Putin still has elections, as Stalin said. You go to Russia. I was in Russia, uh, Vladivostok last year. Performing Shells are filled. Doing what? It's. Uh, I was on a cruise ship, so okay. I perform on cruise ships sometimes. Okay. So. The shelves on all the stores, there's a tourist place, right? There's pictures of Putin and Stalin, the only two past leaders on the shelves hmm. with the current and the past. No Gorbachev. No Gorbachev, nobody else. He tells you right now yeah. who he is or who he thinks he is or right. wants to be. Yeah, well, yeah. It's the glory years of Russia, the Soviet Union, complete, complete control, government in complete control. It's just crazy. It's so crazy. they have democracy, right? But as Stalin said, it's not important who votes. It's important who counts the votes. <laughs> we have voting machines now. I know. Voting machines. I know. Okay. It's the scariest And they're so easy to rig. Yeah. Right. And everyone's so like, and it's, it, everyone was lining up for the voting machines when the hanging Chad was a problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 It's yeah. like. I have a picture yeah. of my dad. My dad was a small town politician, uh, you know, and I have a picture of him from like 1960. He's got a little adding machine, right? Mm-hmm. They're in the they're in the they're the vote they're voting. He's counting the votes. He's a Democrat. He's counting the votes over his shoulder. A woman who's Republican is watching him count the votes. That's the, the only way double to do check. It. Yeah, and that's how they did it. Yeah, it's the only and way. That's how they it. got fair elections. Yeah. I mean, you think the people designing the voting machines also design slot machines? <laughs> is that is that the same company? Set them up with, yeah. yeah, they're all they're all. Well, it's only going to be 51, 52 They've all contributed to Mitch McConnell, oh, uh, so he's not going to do anything to stop these these voting machines from becoming the the, the they 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 don't want free elections anymore. The right. flip the flip came in in the 20, 2010 demographics that from the census you know, the twenty ten census mm. showed that a white Americans will become a minority in the country in the year 2045. That flipped the switch in the Republican Party. Oh, Remember before that, you're talking about after they lost Obama, we need to be more inclusive. We now have a bigger tent, bring more minorities and people into our tent, right? Because right. right, Forget that. They want full-on white. They want, you know, right? It's like, it's like tropical thunder, never go full retard, right? Right, yeah, right. And, yeah. So the Republican Party was never go full racist. Yeah. Never go full racist. Dog whistles, bird whistles, whatever you want to call them, right? Go dog whistles. Always, always these, you know, law and order. That was just saying, we're going to take control of the cities. Black people are a problem. Go to law and order, crack down on them. There were all these welfare queens. Was always was a was a dog whistle, right. you know, to, to referring to black people. The Willie Horton ad. There were all these little racist games, but Trump went full racist. That's how I got the nomination. That's how I got the win. He went full racist. All the other candidates were like, oh my God, he went full racist. He got in front of the mob. Yeah. I don't like to get too political. Yeah, I like well, this. No, I'm sorry I went off. No, I don't mind. I just read the only reason is I like these podcasts to be evergreen. But I will say that 
like this whole um impeachment thing we just went through yeah like i'm 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 like i'm pissed at the liberals about it <laughs> because it was it was never going to win it was never going to happen and the days are gone where where there are going to be you know republicans who are going to be impacted by the fact that trump technically got impeached right like like the republicans were talking about clinton as well he was impeached well he wasn't ultimately impeached and the Democrats now want to talk about Trump as well. He was impeached, but he wasn't ultimately impeached. Wasn't convicted. He's impeached. Wasn't convicted. That's a really high bar. That's, you know, you got to get two thirds of the Senate anyway, or 60. 60 and the thing is, they they decide, look, here's my point. The, the Senate decided, well, we're going to do this trial without evidence or witnesses, <laughs> you know? Okay. So that how is that a trial, right? That's right. nothing. So so obviously it's irrelevant. And, and here's what I'm upset about is that I think it was short-sighted. I think it was old thinking on the part of the liberals. And I think this is what we don't get the left as a group is that the, the, and Obama, you know, he, he outthought the Republicans and he won the election by, you know, going on Facebook and like he did this whole, he won that campaign in a way that had never been done before. He, he really motivated young people. Plus he was a fucking phenomenal candidate. I mean, he had a lot going for Plus him. he I, was I, coming behind Bush. Listen, I love Obama. There's, right. I mean, right. to the day I die, I will love Obama. I'm right. not saying he's perfect, but I will always I, love I'm him. I'm with you. I think he'll be the go down in history as the best president we ever could have had. And that's me. That's how I feel about him. But what I think has happened with this impeachment is anybody who's had any feelings, positive feelings toward Trump, those feelings just got ratified. Like, um, they're, they're more... People are more radically in favor of him now than ever. Like, I really? almost... I, that's what I think. The people who liked him. You know, I don't think there are, there's a there's a handful of Republicans that oh what he did is awful. I bet you anything they will be voting for him in 2020. Like look look back at the, the investigations for Hillary, the Benghazi. What a farce that was, right? Mm-hmm. Benghazi. With a couple of years of that, millions spent. It energized the Republican base. That's what they were doing, right? And they were bleeding her, right? They were bleeding her. They were cutting her and bleeding her. Same with the emails. I think this was a good move, the impeachment, because it also rallied. The Democrats need something to rally. So look, look at this. They exposed the Republicans for who they are. They exposed them. I mean, I think numerically, the, numerically, uh, uh, the Democrats can win. They can win. So I want to make. Something I don't think clear. you're going to get. They were going to get any pe- people that are for Trump or for Trump. That's it. Right. That's it. They weren't going to change that. They're not going to change that, but they they get a rallying cry and energize their base, which I think was important to do. I want you to know that I want you to be right. <laughs> I want to be clear about that. So that is clear. Listen, and after I'm wrong. Any, I'm wrong so often. Uh, don't don't no, bet on this horse. But I want you to be right. Yes, like, don't misunderstand you. me. I hear you. I'm with you 100%. I you. Listen, I couldn't imagine him getting elected. I was so wrong on that election. I thought we'd do the right thing at the last minute. That's what Winston Churchill said, right? Winston Churchill said, Americans... We'll always do the right thing, eventually. Eventually, yeah, right. And I thought that election—that's what would happen. That, yeah. it, that he was close in the polls and all. And I thought once everybody went to the polls, it would be a landslide. He would get smashed. So I was shocked by his victory. Obviously, there were a lot of people, Michael Moore and other ones, who predicted it. And um, you know where you're supposed to look to find out who's going to win? There are these betting rooms in—I think it's in London—where there are people allowed to gamble on who wins the right, American presidency, right. and that is the most accurate. Boy, um, people, prediction. people who set the set the odds they're amazing right? yeah so like that right that's, but that's where it is like yeah, yeah you know and like even i heard joe rogan on a podcast talk to the day just he just kind of threw it out there briefly he's like uh 
Oh yeah, I heard even in you know he said right now Bernie Sanders is ahead even even in the uh, the gambling the gambling rooms or whatever like in they the, have him yeah uh, he's they they have him winning winning the nomination right at the moment yeah so right now no one knows about the election that's that's the next step you know my thing about liberals and I consider myself to be one is the nature of being liberal is like thinking for yourself and and exploring different ideas. And, you know, not agreeing with everything. And the Republicans are great at agreeing with each other or at least rallying around a candidate. Like nobody can rally around a candidate they all hated a minute ago better than the Republican Party. A friend of mine went to prison. He said, in prison, they always tattoo love and hate on their two hands, right? Okay. He said, they always tattoo hate on the dominant hand. The right hand, if you're if a right hand. If the right hand or left hand, that's interesting. Right hander. Okay. Because hate is always more powerful. More powerful. More yeah. powerful rallying cry. More energizing. Love I'll tell you when I I'll tell you when I knew Hillary lost the election was the day her her campaign slogan became "Love Trump's hate." If your <laughs> if your opponent oh god I, don't, I didn't remember that if your opponent's name is in your slogan <laughs> yeah. you've conceded the election yeah like how who the fuck told her she to do ba- that look look we know she was not a great candidate she was a horrible candidate she, we knew that we knew that. I all all I think she could have been a good president. She was not a good candidate. Obviously, she was not a good candidate. She right. lost to this guy. Yeah. Um. But that was that. That was that. I mean. Anyway, we'll see what happens. I, look, I mean, you know, I I uh, I feel grateful to be in this country. I'm lucky to be an American. Um, oh my God. You know. So I people, have tr- tremendous appreciation for look, the life that has been afforded to look, me. People go, "Do you play the lottery?" Oh no, I was born American. I already won the lottery yeah, I once. Won. <laughs> I won it. You don't once. win twice, <laughs> okay? All right, yeah, all right, absolutely. Plus, you read all these stories about people who win the lottery and they're like dead within three years. Like they're penniless. Their friends have abandoned them. Like there's yeah. all these. There's documentaries about people who, yeah. And and I I heard an interesting theory around that, which is that uh, you know I mean everything has karma attached to it. And when you win lottery money, it's not you didn't earn it. You won it. And there's karma attached to every dollar that went into the lottery. And so you take on all of that karma. And people can't handle that much. One individual can't handle that much karma. It's too much. And uh, so all the bad shit that was the, the karma of the people who paid into the lottery, it's not that 100% of each of their karma, come, but a little fraction of each of their karma is on you now. Well, and you're carrying well. the weight of that. And that's why all that bad stuff happens to the people who win. And it's just an interesting, it's again, it's like anything else, it shouldn't be treated as gospel. It's yeah. an interesting, interesting way to think I, about it. I used to buy lottery tickets uh-huh. and between walking out of the 7-Eleven or whatever with the lottery ticket, getting my car, I'd fantasize what I'd do with all the money. Right. And then I never checked the numbers. That huh. was it. I said, that's a dollar's worth of entertainment. Okay. Well, that's a good way that to was, go. That's all it was. I, I give this money to this people, this money to them, this money to them, this money. I have this much money left over. That'd be great. Throw the ticket in the floor of the car and never looked at it again. I mean, you, you probably won a couple times. <laughs> <laughs> Who needs that kind of karma? <laughs> yeah. Now, you know, <laughs> the best thing that ever happened to you is not looking at those numbers. <laughs> that's right. You could be miserable right that's now. That's right. Let's God knows exactly how much money I can handle. And that's what I've been getting. <laughs> That's actually true. There's truth to that. It is absolute truth. There's to tremendous wisdom to that. And like, and, and maybe God's testing people who win the lottery. He's like, yeah. I don't think you can handle this much money. Let's see yeah. how long it lasts. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Let's see how many people you alienate. <laughs> Listen, you know? I've made big money in Hollywood showbiz money for a while. Uh-huh. Right. And I blew it so fast. Did man. you? And I, oh yeah. I ran it. And huh. not, not all of it, but 
you know, and I wasn't even drinking or doing drugs at the time. So I can't imagine, even when I, back in the day when the comedy clubs were, we were making so much money on the road. I mean, right. it's hard for guys your generation to realize opening acts, you know, the MC was getting $1,500 a week in the wow. early yeah. 80s, right? right? The middles were getting 25, 35. You get a five, seven, 9,000 a week in the clubs. Wow. There were comics you never heard of doing six figures a, a year, easy. In the club, Ollie Joe Prater, John Fox, these road dogs that would sell drinks because you were selling drinks. You were you're in bars, mm. and this is before Mothers Against Drunk Driving changed the drunk ruined driving comedy ethos. Before Mad Ruined Comedy, right? Before, <laughs> but they, but we, <laughs> those they, fucking mothers. They like you go on stage as long as you want because we're selling drinks. And after that, then they said, <laughs> okay, look, you got to get off at a certain time. We've stopped serving drinks. We can't overserve them. But they didn't care. You go into town, the club owner goes, Ollie Joe was just here, sold fifteen thousand dollars. And liquor last week. How are you going to do? Because he's drinking on stage right. with the audience. Right. So, you know, there's a whole different different thing. So the the money, uh, you know, we were making so much money. And you weren't even paying for your drugs because every drug dealer in town wanted to hang out with you. You're in town. We were little rock stars at the time. So, I, and I still managed to save no money. So I was blowing it like crazy. What did you spend it on? I spent it on clothes that I didn't wear or stuff that I left behind. Every kind of technic. My friend Kevin Reed used to call me techno because everything that came out. Oh, there's a record player you can take on the road, a little portable record player. This is before cassettes. Oh, my God. A portable right? so, record player. Yeah, it, was like, it, looked, it, looked like a, it looked like a shoebox. You'd slide the album in to the slot oh, I and to a play. That. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And then I'd take that or then, then there's the Walkman. Then I had to get everything that came out, right? Every kind of thing that came out, I had to buy, right? I'd buy all the tapes and then leather jackets and a motorcycle, sell this motorcycle, buy this, you know, give this away. You know, you just, you were making more money than than I knew what to do with it and I was drinking and drugging anyway so my, my my judgment was a little off anyway. Yeah. But I mean, it was like, you know, you're, you're partying, you're partying hard. It's time, time for you to foot the bill for the Coke tonight, you know? for eight people or whatever oh. it's your turn it's your turn you know right jesus so there was a lot of money going around i i ended up with just about the right amount <laughs> enough to fund this yeah, project just you're enough. doing right now yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i'm still look i'm still standing i'm still somebody says, what are you doing man like you're 67 years old and you got this new project this it's a lot of material I'm mussing around with yeah. this show, right there's yeah. a lot of material and a lot of stuff to memorize and all. i go i gotta have distractions from death yeah, that's what yeah, this yeah, is, yeah. That's right? What this I is. mean, let, you let's seem like it. you're in good shape, man. I'm in great shape. I, yeah. I, I, I don't drink. I don't do drugs. I don't smoke. I eat well. I exercise. I'm pretty. I've been lucky. Like yeah. We've talked about being lucky. I'm lucky. So I got to do I mean, something. Those are with choices, this time. man. That's not. Those are those are wise choices. That doesn't equate to luck. I'm not saying you haven't also been lucky. But been lucky. Eating well and not drinking and not doing drugs, those are smart choices. Like those if are I wanted to live, those choices. are smart choices. Yeah, yeah if you wanted to live. Yeah, if you wanted right. to be fun, you wanted to be a cool guy, that was stupid. I did as long <laughs> as I could being a cool guy. At the end, I wasn't a cool guy. Yeah, it's not. <laughs> at some point, it stops being cool. Uh, Bob Weir said that in that really cool documentary, What a Long oh, Strange that's a great. Trip. That's a great documentary. Yeah, it was really good. He's like, you know, at some point, you know, it just stops being cool, being, you know, chasing skirts when you're 60. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. It's yeah, like, yeah. I decided to start a family. It's not fun. He had a different word for it, but it was like, you know, that's just not uh, a Tomcat or something like that. He's like, that's, that's just right. Not, he did use Tomcat. Yeah. You're right. He's like, uh, right. yeah, you just can't be Tomcatting around in your fifties. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you start looking a little skeezy. Yeah. Yeah. The whole thing does, but it's just what your choices you make. And I, and I wasn't, and creatively things, you know, Mike, that was what, you know, talk about in, 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 in alcoholics, uh, um, 
of what, what's your bottom? Like, what is the thing you lost you value the most? That's what people normally start looking at. Maybe I got to stop drinking right. because it's cost me whatever it is, your marriage or your dreams or whatever. But for me, it was my sense of humor. My sense of humor was gone. Oh. I wasn't funny anymore. I was angry, really angry. From and doing drugs and drinking? Yeah, with drinking and doing okay. drugs. I couldn't turn that big wheel to turn the anger into humor. Mm. It was just not happening. And so I'd lost my sense of humor. That's when I really flipped out. You know, in terms of, I gotta get rid of this stuff. It's not helping anymore. And it did help beginning. It opened right. a lot of doors. It gave me courage, you know, liquid courage. You call alcohol yeah, liquid yeah, courage. Yeah. It gave me, it, it gave me the, 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 the courage and knock down a lot of doors, break, break some things, get out. I, I used the hallucinogens. I used a lot of stuff to open some windows. And, but um, uh, it, it, it stopped working. It stopped working. Yeah, I had that realization. I did. I dropped acid six times, and I was like, you know, <laughs> and and that's now you're laughing because that's not enough times. I can tell. No, like, no, six no. Times, that's it, adorable. Hey, no, no. If that's enough for you, that's great. Well, I'm, it was enough for me to have these great expansive experiences yeah, yeah. and to realize, like, pretty soon, I already felt like I was at the tipping point of like I'm. I'm getting less out of it each time and it's taking more out of me each that's, time. That's, and that scale is already flipped. That's why I was laughing because you know? those are six times are great. Yeah. And if I'd stopped at six, I'd probably felt back and thought that was perfect. <laughs> but I, I never could stop few, when it was I think perfect. I took mushrooms a few times after that to be fair. But I, but when I turned 30. Uh, mushrooms. <laughs> ah, mushrooms are great. Uh, when I turned 30, 31, I got really into meditating and, and I realized like drugs and alcohol. I mean, I didn't realize it. My teacher told me this, so I believed him and I still agree with him. He said, drugs and alcohol are moving you in the opposite direction of meditation. So, you know, at some point you'll make the decision to stop doing drugs and alcohol when you're serious enough about meditating. And that yeah. didn't take very long for me. Like I was like, well, I'm, you know, I'm putting a lot of, mostly I was expensive. Like I was spending a shitload of money on my spiritual education. I'm like, I'm not going to undermine <laughs> this investment with drugs and alcohol that also cost money. Yeah. You know, like yeah. I can, I got to choose where I'm spending my cash. Is it going to be on getting enlightened <laughs> or just being high? And I decided to spend on getting enlightened instead. And, uh, and now I like have to go out of my way to drink. Um, but I, I mean, I, I don't drink very much once in a while. I, 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 luckily I can drink without having it be a problem and drugs don't really interest me anymore. I've done all that shit. Um, so, I mean, I wish I'd done ecstasy and things like that, that I never did. I don't want to do it now. I'm too old. I didn't think I'd done it because I'd quit drinking when it became the thing. Uh -huh. But I found out I'd actually done it when it was MDMA in the seventies. In oh. oh. It's a thing they tweak every once in a while. Yeah, it's yeah. the same sort of thing. It's actually invented in world war one. Really? The German army. This is true. I did this joke, I'm actually, I'm doing a joke. Just joke alert, let you know I'm not just spritzing this out. Okay. But I, I, the, 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 the German army was looking for some sort of amphetamines to give their troops. And trench warfare was a lot of staying alert for long periods of time. Right. So when the troops were in the front, they wanted to give them something. But it wouldn't be so harsh, they'd grind their teeth down to sawdust the way, way methamphetamines worked right. back then. So this Swiss chemist came up with what we now know to be ecstasy. Mm. But then the troops were humping each other and playing oompa music all night long. That's the joke. <laughs> okay. well, I, was, I was believing the story. Um, that I believe the they were part. fucking each other. Yeah. 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 So that would, no, but that was, that's, that's, uh, that's where it was actually started. That's where it was embedded. And they just tweak it because you know, when, when ecstasy first came out, it was legal. I was on the streets of Austin, Texas. The first time I heard somebody selling it. Just right in front of a police officer because it was legal. If it's not as the whatever the chemical breakdown is, right. you know, the, the the chemical symbols right, it's not the exact thing, has yeah. to be in the code, the federal code. 
has to be in there to be illegal. So they would just tweak these things once in a while and change it, and it wouldn't be illegal. So ecstasy wasn't illegal at that time. People were selling it right on the street in Austin, Texas. The first time I ever heard somebody saying ecstasy, you know, ecstasy, 10 bucks, right. ecstasy, whatever. I was like, what is that? Well, that's a new, new, new I remember coming out of Texas, and I remember it being a very delicate chemical structure that if they got it wrong, you went insane. And like it was, it was, it was a lot of people were getting bad ecstasy and, and the, and the downsides were catastrophic. Yeah. Uh, so I just decided that was like, you know, I, I mean, I, I, I was in college during the AIDS, the, the birth of the AIDS epidemic, you know, I was in college 88 to 92 is when every, we thought everybody had AIDS, you know? And it's so, and same thing with ecstasy. It was like, we thought all ecstasy was bad ecstasy. So it was like, there are people doing it, but we were like, wow, they're really taking their life. See, in their that's, hands. that's see, again, I had that perfect little, there was that perfect little window yeah right when the pill came out became popular right okay and there was there were no stds really Ugh. i mean the worst you were getting was body lice crabs that would be about it oh man and, that and there's like penicillin to cure any syphilis you might get right and that was it and then all of a sudden it's like herpes in the 70s so yeah. oh herpes so you go oh, be careful about herpes herpes yeah. you know and then of course the aids in the 80s yeah but we had that little little window there in the late 60s early 70s yeah no that sounds fun <laughs> <laughs> it was i've never i've never i mean I, I my whole life has been has been burdened by fear of stds like yeah you know and now it's crazy like the kids right. these kids these days they don't give a shit anymore <laughs> like they are, the whole generation of millennials has just decided we're all going to have herpes at some point so yeah. fuck it well, you, you know, know what's the worst is is down in the villages, those retirement communities. In the, yeah, 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 yeah. They have nervous. the highest SCTs of any community around. I know, I know, because right. one fucker brings it in. Bangs yeah, they're the all, they're community. all just, you know, it, uh, uh, my, I have an uncle lives there. He says, you know, it's always funny to see where the, the, the golf carts are parked in the morning. Oh, They're right. always at night. He says, he says sometimes I go out late at night just to watch the, the traffic because you see golf carts at midnight scooting booty around call, people are going between houses. I have a friend of mine. He's a Vietnam vet uh, uh, in, in Phoenix. He's in the same community. He says, I got here. You know, he's widowed. He says, yeah. I couldn't believe it. I got, I'd never been hit on like this ever in my life. You know, he's like 70 some years old because right. I was like the young guy here. Yeah, and all yeah. these women are coming after me. That's just my dad likes it. My dad tells a lot of uh, old home jokes. And his my one of my favorites of his is, is Ethel stands up. She's like, today's my birthday. And if any of you can guess how old I am, you can have sex with me. And Irving, like, you know, slowly rises up to his walker and says, 77. She says, close enough. <laughs> 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 this is, oh, that's fuck. yeah it's perfect so all right back to you <laughs> um you started in 77 yeah what happened next you went up to new york you dropped all your jokes well, I, was, so I, was, was I was in law school you were in law school so i was okay. kind of you know doing it and i was but i was doing it more and more all the time and i was just finding places to do it anywhere in in dc there right. weren't and then a comedy club there wasn't a comedy club but this guy had a uh, his dad had a bar down in southeast of uh, Washington, Al Brookman's. And he, a friend of mine in law school said, you see this in the paper, there's a little ad says, anybody wants to do comedy, come to Al Brookman's. So I went down there and all these people showed up. Lewis Black showed up. Mm. He was part of it. Kevin Rooney, my friend. Ron Zimmerman, Bill Masters, John Heyman. All these people started showing up to do comedy down there. Yeah. And um, um, uh, so the sort of community, I sort of found a community. Then Garvin's in 1979 opened and it was the first paying comedy club outside of California. We were bringing people from 
outside of DC, New mm-hmm. York comedians, Los Angeles comedians. I started meeting these guys. I was the house MC, and I started meeting these guys. And uh, they were like, you gotta move to New York, man. So the spring of 79, I just said, I'm, I'm done with law school. I'm gone. Your parents must have been thrilled. No, they were like gut punched, man, because my family has a lot of potential defendants. <laughs> they thought this would be this fantastic. Is, you were going to save the yeah, family. I was going to be the free legal aid for the family. <laughs> and uh, I just went to New York City. And, and, and it was just a different time. You know, my, my rent was $110, and I had a hard time making that. Right. And uh, there's all these stories. I wrote a book called uh, Kicking Through the Ashes. Okay. Uh, did I did I send you a copy? Not of the book. I didn't send uh, you a copy yet. I'll yeah. send you a copy. Okay. Is it so, a digital? You got a digital? I got a, I got an ebook version for you if you want. Yeah, great. That I got a hard to copy too. I could have brought. No, no, one. no, no. Bring me the digital. I'll, okay. Because it's it's easier for me to read. I'll, oh, I'll send you a digital. So great. I wrote this book. It's really about my journey in the comedy and then all the '80s. It's all about the '80s. Oh, it sounds fucking the awesome. '80s explosions. Like yeah. my life as a stand-up in the in the '80s. Um, so um, uh, I got there and it was like all these guys. It was Jerry Seinfeld. It was Gilbert Gottfried. It was Rick Overton. It was Glenn Hirsch. Uh, Carol Liefer, of course. Right. Uh, they were all Larry Miller. All these comedians that were, you know, the the Joe Piscopo, Rich Hall, uh, Eddie Murphy was a young comic that came in. Yeah. Uh, in, the, uh, in fact, I was I was the MC on audition night, the improvisation when he came in audition. Wow! And he had an entourage. I think he was seventeen years old. You know, there were all these people sitting around the bar. Right. I come out to the bar area. And I go next to Eddie Murphy. I never forget it. He stands up. He's got an a, an overcoat over his shoulders, you know, like without his yeah, arms right. through the sleeves. Right, right. Like, uh, a guy behind James him takes Brown's the style. overcoat off of him and he works forward like what? Unbelievable. And four people follow him in. Wow. Follow him in and he, he killed. Do? Just he killed. killed. Yeah, and he so just funny. did prior and Cosby impressions he's and their a, material. I've been watching and been listening to his stand-up recently. I went through a whole thing. I went, th- I went through all of the stand-up that I, could, that I could watch and listen to. Yeah. And... What I didn't realize back then is he's just, he's such an actor. Like yeah. he does so many, they're all characters. He does one character after another. Only a few bits are like traditional stand up. Most yeah. of it's in character. I was like, oh, you know. And then you yeah. saw him on Saturday Night Live recently. Did you see that? Yes, I did. He murdered the whole fucking yeah, show. I know. He was unbelievable. Yeah. He was in every skit. <laughs> <laughs> and he just proved that he's the king, you know. I loved him going on on a Weekend Update, you know, and yeah. being like, "I'm Gumby, damn it!" He just like yeah. he wouldn't stop laying. Like, and, like, and that's a character from like you know thirty some years ago. Yeah, yeah. It was just it was fantastic. Right, right. I okay, mean, he, so you, you, yeah. So he so, he so all these in. comics and everybody's just trying. Tr- nobody was. Everybody had straight jobs. Yeah. Very, very few people were just starting. I think maybe Seinfeld, some other people were just starting. You could make enough money for your rent if you emceed enough at Catch a Rising Star, which right. is one of the club's comic strip or the improvisation. If you could get a couple of MC jobs, you know, you could you could pay your rent right. and pick up. And then they started these, uh, Jerry Stanley started booking these bars in Jersey. They, he started paying $55 for, you'd go out in the Jersey and then, of course, Garvin's was open, and there's, uh, and then eighty clubs started blowing up everywhere. Mm. The clubs, you know, Detroit Comedy Castle, Mark Ridley, then the Cleveland Comedy Club, and the, the Yuck Yucks up in Toronto and Montreal had the Comedy Nest, where Ernie Butler had a place, and there was a club in Ottawa, Canada. I mean, my first tour was I went out to Comic Comic Strip, opened up in Fort Lauderdale, nineteen I don't know, maybe nineteen eighty. Okay, and I get down there, and um, 
<laughs> Kelly Rogers, we're in the condo. There was a condo. We're all in there. We're partying. Right. And Kelly Rogers is on the telephone, landline telephone, right? Right. right? With a cord and the whole yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. Motion, come on, come over. I come over. He's got the phone to his chest. He says, whatever the guy asks if you can do, tell him you can do it. So I go to the phone and say, ah, this, this is such, such, I'm up in Ottawa, Canada. I need a comic next week. You know, the, for can you do two 45-minute shows, separate 45-minute shows? I said, yes. He goes, fantastic. <laughs> Come on up, you know, get the details. I'm going to go right from Florida up to there. Yeah. I had like 25 minutes if they laughed at everything I did. Right. If they laughed at it all, I had 25. So, you know, I go up there and I'm like, I'm just going to do my 25 minutes and then just write like crazy. You know, that yeah. was it. I, I did well there. At the end of the week, he brings me into his office and somebody wants to talk to him. I go on the phone and he says, is there any butler in Montreal? I heard you did great in Ottawa. You want to come here this week? Come on over here right now. I go, sure. I went from Ottawa over to Montreal. Did a week there, the same thing. End of the week, said, somebody wants to talk to you. Get on the phone. It's Mark Breslin at Toronto Yuck Yucks. Heard you did great in Ottawa and Montreal. Would you like to come to Toronto? And I went there. Nice. So I was like, I went out as an MC and comic strip in Fort Lauderdale, came back as a headliner. That's, I mean, that's that's everybody's story. Right. <laughs> no, I mean, that was, but that, but clubs started to quote. No, I'm, I'm, I'm if kidding. you could do I mean, the time. Fucking... See, what happens is a lot of comics got lazy back then. The showcase clubs, you only need 15, 20 minutes. Right. And they were all tourists, mostly tourists. They right. were so popular. You know, you'd have the people coming in from New Jersey or other boroughs or whatever. But there were a lot of tourists, and you could do the same act. Yeah. 15, 20 minutes over and over and over again. You didn't I have mean, to write I a lot of material. Dude, I don't know how people do the same act all the time. I know, but they, would, they could do it back then. And, 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 you know, I was always about material. I wanted more and more and more. I loved the smell of new material. Yeah, that's a great phrase. The smell of new material. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'm the same way. I really, uh, I mean, I write new stuff for me. Like I've got a couple new bits I'm working on. I'm so happy. I'm like, I've never been happier to be on stage than I have the last week because I wrote my first two new bits in six months. So you're more of a writer than a performer. Unfortunately. Most comics are more of one or the other. Yeah. When you have someone who's supremely gifted at both, you got an Eddie Murphy, you got a Richard Pryor, you got a George Carlin, you got a Lenny Bruce. But I need the performing. You got like, a Louis C.K., you got a Bill Burr. Yeah. yeah, you need to perform it, obviously. No, but I need, like, I personally, like, I get I get jittery if I haven't performed. Like, it's right, a, I am right. fully addicted to performing. We, we need that. Uh, need but that I, feedback, biofeedback. It is, it's biofeedback, yeah. Um, And it is seriously like crack. Like, it's the same, has a, and I haven't done crack, but it's that got that effect on me. Like, I'm like, the other night, I was talking to my girlfriend, I'm like, oh, I feel a little off, you know? Like, <laughs> nothing was, was okay, and I was like, oh. I haven't been on stage in 36 hours. I'm a mess. That's your personal calibration. Yeah. So I got up at 10 o'clock at night. I drove across town <laughs> and went to an open mic. I went up. I think I went up last. I think I was supposed to be last, but then two other people showed up. You know, um, So I ended up being third to last. But yeah. there was nobody there. There were two women in the audience. I had a great set. I had so much fun You know, just talking the shit with them and like, you know, I mean, they were drunk and, and one of them was totally wasted. The other one was only half wasted. So I had a conversation and a half, you know, but I worked my new material. I'm just trying to, you know, like you just trying to get the reps in. Like, I just wanted to, I've got these new bits. I just want to say them as many times as possible. See if some lines you come up. You can't practice this stuff at home. You can't no, do yeah, it. You can't. It has to be the laugh is that that's the beauty of it. It's a natural instinct that can't be fake. Lenny Bruce said, you could fake about two laughs, three laughs before you go insane. Before you go insane. Yeah. You can't fake laughter. Can you, do you practice like in front of the mirror and all that shit? <laughs> do you believe in that? Listen, I'm finally able to shave in front of a mirror. Okay. I'm not, uh, I'm not one of those people that look into the, in the mirror and go, I like that guy. So yeah. I, it's always been, 
Uh, no, I never. You couldn't do it. You have to go on stage to do it. Yeah. First of all, the, even the even the craft a bit, you know, right? To get the timing right, yeah. to get the the setup correct and the punchline, it has to be done in front of an audience. Yeah. I mean, that's it. going from the page to the stage. That's the big jump. That's the big transition. Right. You know, because you write something down, you go, "Oh, this is great." Then you go to stage, and you go, eh, the setup's a little too long or not enough setup. Yeah. The punchline doesn't track correctly. It's not funny enough. Whatever it is, you you'll find out. They'll let you know. Rodney Dangerfield said, "And they may be uh, individually, maybe orangutans, but as a group, they're genius. <laughs> they're genius." <laughs> yeah, that's true. Right? They are. Yeah, they are. They're genius as a group. It's really amazing. Yeah, they take on this this personality. Each one takes on its own personality, and. Yeah. Do you think there's such thing as like a bad crowd? Hell yeah. And some comics can make it a bad crowd. Yeah. I mean, I, I always say the opening act, look, do your time. I can't, I don't, and don't piss them off. The worst thing that you can do is piss off the audience. Right. Because then I got to go up and put them in a bad mood when they, in a good mood when they've been in a bad mood. Right. So that's the worst thing an opening act can do is piss them off. Mm. I mean, doing too much time, yeah, that's that's wrong. But it's, you know they can be turned into a bad. They can be they can be turned into a bad audience, and everybody has those stories where, you know, I mean, I think probably the most the one that I've heard the most in, in this like mine is like where right before the comedy goes on they say, well, let's have a moment of silence for Officer Clearburn oh, yeah. who was just right. killed. All right, let's bring out the comic. You know that moment where they just take him down yeah. into a dark, sad place. Yeah. Right before the comic comes out, makes it almost impossible. To bring them back, mm. you know that that sort of thing. Yeah, your every only choice is to has, shit on that comic, which isn't a nice. Yeah, thing every to comic have to do. has a story like that. Yeah, you know, and the, and the people that do this, they don't know. Use, I mean, I've heard so many different stories, and I have my own. You know, everybody has those. I once got up after a guy who's uh, he he talked about suicide and all this. He was like the first comic, and I went up second or something right, like that. Right, and he just he just out of the gate just ruined the room. Right, and I got up and I just said, "Any of you have the feeling he's never dated anyone out of his league?" You know, and that was it. Everybody laughed. And that joke was supposed to land on me. The real joke is, I don't know if you've ever dated somebody way out of your league, but I haven't. That's what I usually say. <laughs> yeah, right. But this time was the first time I, I had to lay it on him. Yeah. Because, I, and, and then I got the crowd happy again. And then I did, yeah. then I did yeah. a set. You have to, you have to address that yeah, elephant in the room. To, you have yeah. to do that. And I didn't want to, I didn't you want to wanna, annihilate the I know you don't want to do that, but sometimes you have to. Yeah. And yeah. I've, done it. I've done it where you go, you really can't. And it takes you 10 minutes to clean up the mess. Yeah. You know, I, I literally sometimes remind myself kicking stuff off the stage. Like a joke gets a little bit laugh and I kick something off off the stage just for myself. Oh. And then the other comics in the back room goes, I saw what you're doing here, man. <laughs> Every time you kicked another piece of trash off the stage that he left up there. I go, that's right. You know, yeah. there was literally a time and I wrote about it in a book where, where um, uh, we were following, the, we were working with this guy and he was a comic, a very funny uh uh, name is Wid, legendary Wid. He's a prop comic out of the Philadelphia area, okay. and he was young. He just starting out, and we we're doing this club. And my wife was the middle act, and I was the headliner. Okay. So he'd do all these props, open up, and he'd leave them all over the stage, mm. right? So she came out; she couldn't really move around, right? You know, there's this evidence of his act all around it, like trash. I said, "You got to clean it up, man." I told him yeah. between us, "You got to clean up your yeah. stuff before you go off." Yeah. He goes, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." And he's really eager, but he forgot again. He does the same thing. She goes, at "The second show, I get up stage, I start taking his props, doing a joke, and throwing them against the back wall." I mean, literally <laughs> heaving them. Yeah. Some of them are breaking. Some of them, you know, I'm just heaving them against yeah, yeah, the brick yeah. wall. Every one of them, until I finished them all. Next act, the next time he went up, cleaned up his stuff. I bet he, he did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Asking those people isn't enough. Yeah, yeah. 
you I got to you got to clean up before you leak. You know that's what always gets me up when people work real dirty right before the next comic comes up. If you're not the headliner, right? Why do you do that? Yeah, I mean give the, give the that again. This is how old school I am. It is, nobody it is cares, old school, but it's not nobody wrong. cares anymore about yeah. this, right? Yeah. But I do, yeah. and I go leave that for the headliner. If this is show, you know, if it's a show, and that the comic that that comic is the headliner, right? If right. it's a showcase or it's a open mic or whatever, I get it. Who cares? You know, that's. That's different. But if it's a show, I have respect for the person's following you. Oh, yeah. I remember I always, first thing I ask is, I always ask the headliner, you know, is there anything you don't want me to do? You know? And I was I was uh, emceeing recently at a club, and the, the guy who hired me said, just do a bunch of, you know, you're great with the crowd. Just do crowd work. Just get them going, you know? I mean, do whatever you want, but do a lot of crowd work. Get the, get the crowd going. That's your job. I go to the headliner and say, hey, man, is there anything you don't want me to do? Any of the words you don't want me to say? He's like, whatever you do, don't do any fucking crowd work. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know something like, like it. I know something <laughs> like know, it. I and know. I was so fucked because <laughs> I, you know, and I figured do. like, how long am I going to do? You know, 10 minutes. I like to do 10 minutes, you know. Yeah. Um, but sometimes I want you to do five minutes. Like I, I opened yeah. for Carlos Mencia recently and he's like, I hosted for him and like, we don't really want you to host, but we're not going to not let you do the, just, you know, you got five minutes. Just go be funny for, we don't care what you talk about. Just be funny for yeah. five minutes and leave. Yeah. You don't have to say anything. And uh, it was actually kind of liberating. I went up there, I did my best five minutes. I did great. And I left. Um, and, uh, but, but anyway, so this guy's like, yeah, I do like 15, you know, I'm like 15, no crowd work. Like I had to figure, I mean, I have it, sure, sure. but I had to figure out, I hadn't planned for it. So I had to figure out like, what am I going to do? Cause I like to have an arc to my set. Even if it's a three minutes that I like to have an arc, you know? And it's like, so I'm like, fuck, what am I going to do? So I, I pulled out all this material that just wasn't right for this room. So I didn't bomb, but I didn't do great. You know, and Is, nobody lit me. Let me ask you a question. One yeah. or the other. Was it the, 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 the headliner wanted to do crowd work himself? Yes. Or yeah, he does a heavy crowd. He work. didn't want you opening up that for the crowd. No, 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 no. He, he, he heavy ha problem. He heavy then crowd I understand. Work. I totally, yeah. totally get it. No, I totally understand. Yeah. He was a great guy. Yeah, I yeah, love yeah, the guy. Yeah. Um, it just fucked me. I just right. didn't know what to right. do. I was like, it, right. I didn't expect it. And it was a great lesson. Did, like just, it, it's it was just a great reminder. Be prepared for everything. Did, uh, did did Carlos have anybody else open for you or just your five minutes? So first of all, these are two separate two, events. I know, yeah, yeah. I know. Uh, yes, Carlos had an opener with him. Okay, um, okay. And, and that How guy- How long did the opener do? He does like 20 minutes, 15, 20 minutes okay. of just crowd work, a lot of crowd work, um, you know, and uh, and he's a, he was a black guy. He, he was like half black, half Puerto Rican or something. He was a mix of several different things. And, uh, but he was, you know, ethnic and, and obviously Carlos is Latino. Um, and I was the white guy, <laughs> you know, uh, and and so you know. But I noticed like that guy did a lot of just like crank up the crowd work. Like I'd love to see what that guy would do if he was headlining. I'd be interested to see his material. I don't feel like I got to see his material. I got to see him rev up the crowd for Carlos. And for all the bad things people will say about Carlos, right. see, and I'm not going to defend him I, if he's stolen jokes, which it sounds like he has. Well, he admitted nothing, in our documentary. Yeah, there's nothing lower than that in the world of comedy. He. he you know, we did a documentary called I Am Comic. Jordan, yes, yeah, yeah, Jordan I watched Brady it. Yeah, yeah. directed. And they, we were going to interview Carlos. This is not on the documentary. Mm. So his manager called and said, I was on the phone and Jordan was on the phone saying, you cannot ask him about this because Joe Rogan and him were having that thing at the time. Right, yeah. And it was big in the comedy community. He says, you cannot ask him about stolen material. I won't let him be interviewed by you unless you promise not to ask him. We both said, we won't ask him. We walk in. Camera starts rolling. Carlos, right out of the gate, that's the first thing he wants to talk about. First thing he wants to he talk about. He brought it up completely himself. Uh. He says, 
that what he said on camera, it's right there. I mean, he has said, yeah, I do it. And I do it better than you do it. And if you see me in the room, you better not give anything good because I'll take it and I'll make it my own. And it was like, at first I'm thinking, is he being funny? Is he like putting this all on? Yeah. Right? You know, just yeah, saying yeah. That I mean, this is anybody... your, what you think, so I'm going to like mock what you're thinking. No, nah, he's not. He's not. He's, there was no bit of irony in it. There was not a bit of uh, uh, any kind of doubt about it. He was clearly wanting to make a statement, and he did. But, you know, opening acts, it's always kind of a funny thing. I know some people, they, they, they go, I, I'm, I'm opening for this person. Usually... And I think of somebody who's, you, you don't want to be an opening act too long. Yeah. You know what I mean? There's a, um, uh, there's a story. You remember who Don Adams was? Yeah. yeah get smart. Get smart. Get yeah, smart. Yeah. So yeah. he was a young comic in the 50s in New York. Okay. He had a wife and a kid. He wasn't working much. He needed money barely. His agent calls up, so I got a job for you. He says, yeah. He says, it's kind of unusual, but Mae West, who was a big star right. in the 30s, is coming out with a nightclub act. She wants to do a nightclub act now, and she needs an opening act. Go to Boston, to a couple hundred bucks, not a lot, but it may lead to more because she's going to do a national tour. She's got a big right. name. She's going to do Don Adams goes, I need whatever. I'll be there. So next night he's in Boston, goes up, opens for Mae West, has a great set, goes to his little dressing room in the back of the nightclub, watches Mae West go up. She did fine. And he, afterwards, Mae West's assistant comes into Don Adams' dressing room and says, Miss West would like to talk to you. Okay. He says, okay, goes into her dressing room. She says, I love what you've done. And I think that you can be my opening act for the rest of this tour, and we can do a lot of business together. But I need you to change a couple of things of what you're doing. He says, okay, what? She says, take out this, take out that, take out this, take out that. By the time she finished, Don Adams says, those are all my punchlines. <laughs> She goes, yeah, you don't need those. Take those out. <laughs> so the next night he goes on stage. He does all setups. Tries to make it as funny as he can. His punchlines are gone. <laughs> Mae West comes on stage. First clever thing she says, the audience falls out laughing. <laughs> Most headliners want somebody to bring the audience in the vicinity of funny. Oh. Give them a hint that funny might be in the air so you can close the deal. Oh. And that's, what, that's how they choose most opening acts. I've seen so many people go, I'm an open act for them. I go, I know why you did a constant opening act for them. Mm. You know, now, there are some others are different. Somebody's a friend or whatever, and they really, truly respect that opening act and, and let them do what they do. Yeah. But so many times, it's like, just do five minutes. If, you, if that's your attitude as a headliner, you're a real pussy. Oh like, yeah, I I totally bull, agree. I'm just telling bullshit. you what I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, I'm not. Yeah. I'm, I'm not I saying you, I'm not saying that you're uh, you're a proponent of this. Like, <laughs> I'm just thinking like, what kind of? I mean, you really you really insecure if you're afraid of your feature being. I've seen it. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, I've seen yeah. it. Yeah, I mean, I hear all kinds of crazy stories. I've heard of this. I don't know the guy's name, but he's African American comic. He won't let anybody African American open for him. He wants to be the first, first black guy, black guy you see. Yeah, he doesn't. He doesn't. Interesting. Yep. And uh, whereas other black comics want only black comics on the show, they want it to be. You know, they they're uh, they're promoting black comedy. You know, uh, black and the, and the the success of African American comics, and they they want to help their people out. You know, and right. and and this guy's the opposite. Right. Is that know, he wants the whitest motherfuckers in the world <laughs> to go on stage before him. And, and I heard a story like they brought this one guy up who's like white, but he thinks he's black, you know? And so he did his whole act and the guy's like, that guy's too fucking black. I told you I don't want any black people. They're like, he's white, you know? He's fucking white. And he's like, not to me, you know? He might be white, but his jokes were black and I told you I don't want any black people on the stage. And he was furious, 
You know, like oh god, it's you crazy. just reminded me of a story. You know, because it talks about how things can shift. Yeah. But the Def Jam comedy thing shifted stuff so much, and guys who get used to playing in front of white audiences had a hard time all of a sudden playing in front of all black audiences. I'm right. talking about black, black comics. comics. Yeah. And this guy, I can't think of his name now. It's a great story. He goes on stage, like he'd been playing white clubs his whole career. Then he goes to now a black audience, and he had a bit about talking about. Uh, 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 his dog getting fixed, okay. right? He's got to take his dog in to get neutered. Right. And the audience goes, totally, he loses him completely. They're like, oh, oh. And he's like, well, how did I lose them? This is a bit that always works. I do this bit. And the black MC comes on after him and says, uh, you're playing black on his we don't, we don't have the money to go fix our dogs. The dog's lucky if it eats. <laughs> right. That's right? What, and that's... he's like, you didn't understand the, the mentality of the black, in the black community yeah. towards you know, uh, uh, fixing a dog, right? That's yeah. Right. And so so it was a whole he had to have a whole lesson. He had to completely relearn what he was doing comedically because he's so used to playing white audiences. See, my first my first like go to tight ten was a lot of Jewish stuff. And and I wrote it in a comedy class. I had already been doing comedy for a year and a half, so I'd written a bunch of jokes. And then when I did the class, they said, well, you got to get it down to five minutes. We got it. You could, like, this is great, Jason. You've got 15, 20 minutes of material, but we want you to do five, <laughs> you know, so we'll just hone it down till you get to five. And, and it ended up being 11, partially because of uh, a couple of applause breaks and some long laugh breaks, you know, thank God. But uh, anyway, it was all this Jewish stuff. And I ended up with like a pretty tight 10 minutes of largely Jewish material. And for a while, that's what I was doing. And I did it in Tennessee in a mostly black room at the at a, at a show which was honoring a, a comic friend of mine who died on the road, fifty four years old, fifty five, something had a heart Who's attack. Uh, Spanky, Spanky Brown. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I've you heard know him? Yeah, yeah, he's yeah. fucking great. Um, and uh, he's he's just the bomb. And anyway, he unfortunately had passed away, and so I went to Memphis. I was miraculously, I was driving through Memphis. I was able to orient a trip through Memphis during his funeral and uh, not the funeral, but like the, uh, the service afterwards. So I went to the church. I got to experience a whole black, you know, gospel service in his honor. And then that night we all went to the local comedy club and they let me perform. I just said, you know, I'm a friend of Spanky's. I'm, you know, could I get five minutes? And they're like, I can do 10 minutes, you know? And I did great with this Jewish material in front of a black crowd. I was amazed. Like, I did not think they would think it was funny in Memphis. Uh, but they did. Or maybe, I don't know why I opened with a joke that, you know, that Spanky and I were brothers from very different, you know, Jewish mother. <laughs> like, I was his brother from a Jewish mother or something like that. And uh, um, and they just, and, and I was the, I think I was like the third white comedian in a row. And I was like, I'm the end of your diversity for tonight, you know, because like, yeah, 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 yeah. everybody in the room is black. It's a different, you know, it's a whole different time. Yeah. A, a were, different were, context for that kind of show. Right. Yeah. And they loved it. Like they were totally cool. And, uh, and I did great and I, and I couldn't believe it. And then I, you know, so I thought that that material is bulletproof, but it is not, <laughs> no, it's you know, first of all, there's, it turns show. out there's no such thing as material that's bulletproof. <laughs> and, and I'll have one joke that hasn't, it's only failed twice. Um, so that's pretty close, but, uh, then, so I, so then I've been doing that. That's actually the same material I did for that guy who told me not to do any crowd work, but Jewish material in South Carolina just falls flat or even yeah. like Greensboro, North Carolina. Yeah. They just, they, they don't know what a Jew is. Yeah. Like they just don't, they don't have any context for it. And so I mean, to me, the best people to laugh at Jewish stuff are non-Jews who know Jews. Like they That's think it's point. funny. You know, the Jews don't think it's funny because they grew up with it. They're like, this yeah. is nothing that we don't know. 
and Jews don't like to be told stuff they already know. And, <laughs> and, uh, but, but, you know, Jewophiles love it. And, and, or at least people who aren't anti-Semitic, but they're also not Jewish. Like that's yeah. the, per- that's my, uh, that's, that's my target audience. I'd be a good audience for you. Yeah. Yeah. The, I'd be a the, very uh, good audience. the pro-Semitic yeah, Gentile. Very much. Very much. I'm a huge, huge fan. And that's a whole nother story. <laughs> well, you've been, I'll tell you've, you sometime. You've been. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, no. I, anyway, it's personal, but I, I, okay. look, the, 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 you know, the, the whole thing about material changes, wherever you are, whatever we also, again, grew up with three networks, everybody trying to get into the, it was like a, you know, you had to just cover everybody. You right. know, you tried to reach as many people as possible. And today, and it's really changed for the last few years, you can, it's more balkanization. You, you can appeal more to specific demographics, right. pull your audience out of that bigger mass. Right. So you can do material aimed just to them. But again, the problem is like you said, once you, if you're used to playing in one particular style or type of audience, once you get outside of them, you got to understand you're in a different place. And every comic has, has, has made that mistake. We're like, oh, shoot, I forgot where I am. Yeah. You know, even the greatest, I have stories of the greatest have messed up because they didn't calibrate, didn't shift and go, oh, this is not my, my fans. These are not my people. Mm. This is a different audience. And make that adjustment. Yeah. Yeah. You have to. Uh, you, yeah. I stand adju- in the back and I watch the audience before the show. That's what all the I good comics have. say they do. Always do. Watch them. See them. Try to figure out who they are before I walk on, before even the first comic opens their mouth. Because most of them listen to the first comics, I'm just trying to figure out what to avoid talking right, about. Right, 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 right. What you not know, to what, talk about. Yeah, but, but, and you see what they're laughing at. And it worked against me. I had, the worst I ever did was, it was a one-nighter in Kentucky. It was driving from one place to another, 81, 82. You know, driving from like, you know, a, a one gig in Louisville to go up to Cleveland or something, you yeah. know. And, uh, it was just a bar, one later in a bar. I can't even remember where it was, someplace in Kentucky. And this guy went up in front of me and just started doing racist jokes. I mean, flat out, mm. N-word, just nastiest jokes, man. And he was killing, uh. killing. So I hated the audience. And what I should have done was just got in my car and left. But I wanted that money, whatever it was, three, 400 bucks. Right. I'm getting this money. So I did my act with gritted teeth. I mean, I really, and... And anybody try to even heckle, I just, you know, usually try, let's be a little clever and all. It was like burn the place down. It was a bad show. I punished them for laughing at that comic. Mm. And I hated them before I went on stage. It's the worst possible way to perform. Yeah. I had that happen with a guy last night. This young guy was on his phone the entire time. (laughs) It was just an open mic. But he's on his phone. I'm like, leave the room. You know, and then he said he was a comic. He was going to go up and do stand up for the first time. And I was like, well, maybe you shouldn't be on your fucking phone while the rest of the comics are on stage. You know, he's like, oh, well, you know, maybe you shouldn't have such a receding hairline, you know, or something like that. <laughs> and and what I wish, like, I've been thinking, I told him, like, did, I did, I said, like, I know I'm balding, man. Like, yeah, it sucks. Yeah. Well, you think what are you like, going to do? You think I don't know this? Like, I said, <laughs> I said, I didn't even believe in global warming until it started happening to my skull, <laughs> you know? And, and so, uh, <laughs> and, you can change your behavior. I can't change the receding hairline. Yeah. Well, and so what I wish I'd had the presence of mind to say, uh, cause I've written, rewritten the, the moment multiple times since last night. 
I was like, dude, I'm 50. I'm supposed to be going bald. Yeah, yeah. You're 25. You're not obliged to be a douchebag. Yeah, yeah. You know? And exactly. And the other thing is, what does it bring up? What kind of fear are you having that this bothers you? Yeah, yeah. But you're on the phone, bothers everybody else. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're, yeah. Your behavior is actually bothering people. Yeah, no no one else cares that I'm bald. Yeah, They're paying cares. attention to the material. Unless they have that <laughs> they fear They don't like themselves. the jokes, but they don't mind that I'm bald. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Unless that fear is in them too. Yeah, right. Yeah. So it was fun. It was, it was interesting. I, I was, I just happened to hit a spot where like it had been thin all night and the room was starting to fill up while I was on stage wow. and people weren't paying a lot of it. At one point I was like, nobody's paying attention to me right now. <sighs> and then they started after I said that, yeah. you know, and, yeah. and I had this interaction with him and, and I had started this joke, this new joke that I'm really in love with. And I made the mistake last night of like, anytime I go in and I kind of stick to my plan in spite of what's in front of me, it's never great. Yeah, that's, that's, you know? yeah, that's it. And, and you always have to like, flow with the room and yeah. and and i just didn't do that enough last night and so i was telling this new bit that i have about tango dancing and i got halfway through and i get interrupted by this fucking kid you know and and by the fact that no one's paying attention to me so i did this whole like four or five minute crowd work interlude dealing with him and then i said anyway so we were tango dancing you know and everybody laughed at that they just couldn't believe that i was going to come back to this bit that wasn't working you know but i was just so determined, determined. to finish it you know i totally get it you know my, my agenda used to be obviously to get the laughs yeah. but i had i wanted to do this new material i want to try right. every night i got to try new material and sometimes it didn't fit what was going on yeah like you just said and this guy told me a long time ago it's good stage to be of service to the audience yeah so if you go on stage with that attitude, you'll always find them, because yeah. you're there to be of service to them. Oh, that's so. Get smart. your laughs. Oh, you know you have your you have your standards, you have your boundaries, right. you know. But be of service to them every time. That's a prayer. The only prayer I have before I go on stage every time is please let me be of service to this audience right here, right now, and not think about what I'm going to get, or even if it's their approval of a new joke, whatever it is. Just be of service to them, and you'll find them. Then you always find them. That's so great. That's really, that's, I mean it. That is really sinking in. Like I, I've had thoughts like that, but I haven't understood it that succinctly. Like it's really be of service. And, and so like being of service is never a bad idea. No. You know, like never. just in life. It's like, never. it's never a mistake to be of never. service. You know when that helped me the most is when I was doing auditions for things. And mm -hmm. I got this early. And you know, people go on to do auditions, right? right. You want to get what you're auditioning for. Right. Whether it's a bunch of people auditioning for a, to be a host of a talk show, which was going on a lot back then, or your Letterman show, whatever it was. Right. You're auditioning. So there's 10, 15 comics all doing five, six minutes of their best. And when you went on stage going, I want this audition, instead of going, this is no different than any other night I go on stage. I'm here to be of service to this audience at this time. And if they've been pounded eight, comics in a row with that comic's best and intention the comics you so you could see them like just snapping at the audiences wanting that wanting mm -hmm. that if you just go in there and go hey what's going on yeah and they're like oh right oh the person's actually relating to us yeah they're not trying to drag the laugh out of us yeah right they're actually go, okay here he's here he's, he's here in this moment i've been working really hard at trying to dovetail my crowd work with my material 
like Bobby Slayton. I'm sure you know him. Oh, I love day. Bobby. Yeah. I've known Bobby forever. He's he is amazing. <laughs> I love that guy. I mean, I was yeah. trying to do a documentary about him, so I'm I have a friendship with him. Yeah, as much as anybody can have a friendship with Bobby Slayton. And yeah. uh, I mean, I have all of our text messages. At yeah. some point, he always insults me, and that's the end of the conversation. <laughs> like sometimes he opens with it, sometimes he closes with it. But at some point, he always <laughs> says something horribly mean. Yeah, and yeah. it's always hilarious. The guy is yeah. so fucking funny. He is. He's not. He's just one of those guys. I've actually. I'll go out of my way to see him, and I've done it. Yeah, and I've done it. And one night down in the Comedy Magic Club, you want to hear Bobby Slayton? Quick I love story? it. Yeah, yeah. So down the Comedy Magic Club, Rosa Beach, they have to. They actually have to say this is an X-rated show because normally they're very clean shows down there. Right. They let them know you're coming to see Bobby Slayton. Know what you're getting. Yeah. So before the show, Slayton goes to me. He goes, Hey Shiner, I'm going to lose the crowd purposely. Lose the crowd, right? right. And then watch me get him right back. Yeah. He's, he's never no, got watch back. <laughs> so he's on stage. He's doing his regular act, right? Yeah. Then he goes, Yeah, my wife's a cunt, <laughs> and. There's like, it's like a, just like a, yeah. And you're like, oh, he goes, then there's two guys sitting up. He goes, what are you two guys doing? What are you two gay boys doing out tonight? Right. right. And they start laughing again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he lost him with the misogyny and brought him back with a homophobic <laughs> bit. <laughs> I always refer to him as an equal opportunity racist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like he just, and not just racist. Like he will, he will. He's not a guy who says one thing and does. There was again. I witnessed this. There was another time at down. Happened to be at Comedy Magic Club again. Okay. You know, Slayton's doing his stuff about Mexican Americans, right? right. <laughs> so this guy literally stands up in the audience, and because Slayton had just called Mexico a shithole, he goes, hey, "I know man. the joke." Your country's a shithole. That's yeah. why you left. Yeah, so the guy, so that's yeah, what he stands up and goes, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. It goes further than that. Because he goes, he goes, guy says, hey, man, I'm Mexican-American. That's why you're here. It's a shithole. Let me tell you something. It's a shithole. Always be a shithole. If you And the guy goes, California was, was part of Mexico. Goes, that's right. And if it was part of Mexico, it'd be a shithole. And right now, I'd be in Oregon, and you'd be up there with me. <laughs> Oh, God, he's so fucking right? good. Yeah. yeah, he's so good. Yeah. yeah. I, he really is comedically. Not that I want to be that, you know, uh, I'm not looking to offend in the way that he's willing to offend, but I love the way that he's just fearless. He is just fear. And, I, and my favorite thing is his technique. The blending of material and crowd he's, work is just seamless. He's not. Here's the fun to me. He's just naturally funny. He is naturally funny. Now, it, he, he, the way he moves, the way he talks, it's like a red fox kind of thing. He's yeah. just to me, to me. Yeah. And this is all subjective. Other people don't like him because they don't like the way he moves or talks. Or but yeah. to me, he's sort of that epitome. He's like, remember Ratso Rizzo from Midnight Cowboy? Right. That's Slayton. Yeah. He's Ratso Rizzo doing stand-up. Mm. So he's got that New York thing is so ingrained with him and so and he's a character that way. You might you might not, you don't, might not agree with him. He just makes me laugh. He's oh, just he's funny. So funny. I don't always agree with him by any stretch, but he makes me laugh. And he has that, like you said, he he moves with the crowd work and with the material, which is the look, that's where Robin Williams' gift was. Yeah. And that's been the that's been the requirement for stand-up since Lenny Bruce and Mort Saul. You have to make it seem conversational. Before that, the acts were acts. You knew it right. was an act. You knew this was material. You knew these were jokes. They're coming at you. They're going to roll you over with it. With their, they called them big banana acts, Milton Burrow and those guys. Then it became conversational. You have to make it seem like you're thinking of up on the spot. Right. So the more you can do crowd work and slide your material over into that, right. the more it looks improvisational. Right. That you're just thinking of it in the spot. That's what the audience wants. That's why the other night when you're talking about that thing you did, that's why it worked because it looked like you were just thinking of it on the spot. 
even if it's a bit you've done a million times, right. you can somehow make it look like you've never said it before to that audience. Yeah. Oh, I know. I know. My thing that I'm really stuck in, and this comes from being a writer first, um, is I am so in love with my words and I'm so meticulous with the jokes right. that once I get into the bit, you can totally tell. Like I can totally tell. I can hear that it's stag. I, I don't have. I, I, I lose my natural. I flow. totally. I so I hear it myself. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I hear it myself and I hate it. Hate it. You know, just just for a minute, just a bit, because I want to go back to that writer thing. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. talked about stealing before, and the writer performer thing. Right. Right. I was always felt like I was a better writer than a performer, but I couldn't get people to read my stuff, so I'd go on stage and try to find out what was funny or not. Okay. That's how I got into doing stand up. Okay. I was writing stuff like crazy and sending off the Mad Magazine and National Lampoon and wherever I could send it to and they'd send it back unopened. And so I just had to go on stage and find out whether I was funny uh. or not. The stuff was good that I was writing. The writers, right? The writers care more about that than anything else, whether what they were doing is good. That's why writers tend, you never see a writer being a thief. They, they honor that too much. Right. The thief is the one who's the more performer than a writer. Mm. They need the, that adulation. They need to be on stage at that moment. So they'll get the material from anywhere right. in that moment. They don't care whether it's stolen or not. They right. have to have that moment on stage. Yeah. Well, that was Robin Williams. Absolutely. He he admitted. Absolutely. I mean, he sort of admitted. He said, oh, I get lost in the moment. I don't know why I take this, take that. He, did, but, he didn't have the filter. We all have. Yeah. I'm on stage. Robert Klein line comes to my mind. I don't do it because I know it's a Robert Klein mind. Right. He didn't have the filter. That's what made him so quick. I mean, he was an improvisational guy. Say right. the first thing comes to your mind. Yeah. Right. Doesn't know where he heard it. Yeah. 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 He does know. He does know, and sometimes he doesn't know. Right. I had a thing where, you know, he took uh, one of my jokes. There was a joke I was doing. This is back in the '80s. It was um, everybody was talking about the Antichrist at the time. Uh -huh. I said, well, I'm not the Antichrist. I checked my scalp. I got two sixes and a five. <laughs> that close, right? So um, it was just a funny little joke. Right. So I did it on Letterman show like on a Tuesday night. Right. The following Saturday, Robin goes on Saturday Night Live. He does my joke. Now, we've been all hanging out at the improv in LA. Mm -hmm. I knew where he got the joke. I knew it was right. mine. People called me up. You did your joke. You did your joke. I said, it doesn't matter. I did on Letterman Tuesday. I, I, I got ownership that way. I, did, I got my money's worth out of the joke for me. Right. Robin comes up to me the next week at the improv. Somebody had told him that this is when he was paying for jokes that he, that he found out he'd taken. Okay. He says, I understand I did one of your jokes. And I'm sorry. I'd like to pay you for it. Now, jokes back then were like 50 bucks a joke. Right. I'm going, Robin, I don't need your 50. Yeah, I didn't say 50 bucks. Right. I just said, I don't, that's okay, cool. I got my money's worth out of it. I've already done the joke on Letterman. He says, okay, good. And he does a little bowing thing. He leaves. I go back over to the bar. I'm hanging out with my buddies. I tell him the story. He said, what are you, nuts? He's paying $1,500 a joke. <laughs> the rate has gone up. <laughs> I go, I go, what? He goes, yeah, he feels so guilty. He's like throwing big, huge checks out to people he steals a joke from. I'm like, where'd he go? Where'd he go? I got a family. Uh, you're in service, man. Yeah. That's your problem. Is yeah. You're, you're, yeah. you're, you're too much but of yeah, it, service-minded. You understand that's how he worked. He he was the greatest performer I ever saw. Greatest yeah, stand-up performer. performer ever. He, I think the audience, there are a lot of reasons I think they liked him so much, right? Because he was innately a good person and a kind person. But I think that he wanted to laugh more than anybody else, and they always respond to that. Mm. They sense it. He was. I saw him improv once with Billy Crystal. You know, their their place is packed. Improv in, right. in, in Melrose and Hollywood. Robin goes. 
upstages Billy. He delivers his next line. He steps forward close to the audience. So Billy's no idiot. Next <laughs> line he does, he moves up next to Robin. Then yeah. Robin goes upstage on the next line. Billy moves up. Then Robin goes up to the edge of the stage. Like he's hanging 10 off the edge of the stage to deliver his line. Billy comes up to him and that. Robin jumps off the stage starts running around the audience. Just <laughs> leaves Billy behind. Yeah. And Billy just shrugs his shoulders and goes back to the piano to wait. There's nothing he can do. Yeah. yeah Robin's yeah. like, he wanted to laugh too much. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's... <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot of sadness around obviously around Robin about Williams. What? Robin Williams. I mean, it's just oh, like, he, you know, he he died a um that he had a disease that was terminal. Really, I'm not saying anything. that's not oh, not I didn't know. Yeah, it's a uh, 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 Lewis body disease. I think it was called or body. Lewis. I, I'm messing it up. I can look it up. No, it's all right. But it, it was it was um it's a degenerative um brain disease. Oh, so he was um. And um, knew, he probably made the decision. I'm not, I shouldn't even say anything really. He probably made the decision early like, that when he still could make the decision. Right. Because eventually he'd lose the ability to know where he was or what he was. Oh. And I think he didn't want to go there. So it was no hope. It's like Lou Gehrig's. There wasn't any cure for this. There is no cure for this disease. Oh, I didn't know that. So um, that's as I understand it, what happened. It's sad that he got that disease. But you wouldn't, if he had cancer of some other place or right, something, yeah. and he died, it'd be sad. Or he died in a car crash or whatever. It's sad. But what a what a gift he gave everybody. I mean, oh, yeah. what, he was really, I mean, I, I always look at him in, in terms of what he did for, what he, you know, people are always like, oh, he's a thief, a thief. You don't see what he did. You know, he was the first remote control comedian. He's the first one that realized that Americans are able to digest material faster because of the remote control. Hmm. In the late 70s, the remote control over TVs was ubiquitous. Before right. that, it wasn't. And everybody was flipping. And Robin's act was like that, a flipping. I mean, he, he did bits quick. He moved from one subject to another. It was like one, when he's on the History Channel, next thing's the Weather Channel, the next thing he's talking about, you know, QVC. I mean, he's, he's that way in his act. He, was, he oh. made short, shorter bits. Everybody's bits got shorter. Everybody had long hunks. Robin did quicker bits and shorter bits. A lot of times he moved faster and he realized that the audience had a better ability to digest and that their attention span might have been shorter, but it was also more intense. And I think that he, he showed everybody that. He cut out segues and just did references. And was that, do you think that's so that people wouldn't change the channel kind of thing? Or you think it's because... No, people really, people were, they, people really, they, they had a short attention span, so he moved things fast for them. Right, you'd sit at home, yeah. right? You'd, yeah, no, I remember. I, I, yeah. I remember, man, sitting at home and just going around the round around the horn, eighty channels, just keep flipping, keep right. flipping, and that was it. And people used to, uh, um, who was it? Was somebody had a talk show? that said, "No flipping." It was Gary Shandling on his Larry Sanders show, okay. right? Yeah. He'd go, "No flipping, no flipping, don't flip." We're going to commercial, don't flip. You know, anytime a thing goes to commercial, you flip to another right. channel, yeah, and maybe not come back to the other channel. Right. So Robin, I think, had a had a, a, a had had that. I'm not saying it was conscious, but I think he had that act that was perfect for that. Yeah. And he was so fast and, and his crowd work was fearless. Like going into the audience, I didn't see any, I didn't see anybody going into the audiences before Robin was going into the audience. Literally going into the audience. Yeah. You know, and um the, the it's 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 he should get credit for that. Besides the fact that he was such a tremendous performer and free of his time for like performing for the troops. You know, I always love when people go like, you know, that's that's become thing, and where people like, 
you know, you want to get the audience to like you as fast as possible. Right. So I just perform for the troops, which means like me, right? Yeah, really, right, basically. Yeah. But I always want the comics to complete that sense. I just perform for the troops because it was the best paying job I could get that week. Yeah, right, yeah. Right, let's be honest. Okay, but Robin, that's the kind of guy, he's a star going on. He doesn't, he's not getting paid any money. He's doing it, you know, he yeah. did a lot of trips over there for the troops. There were guys of that level doing it. Um, uh, he was just very, very giving and free and and always want to make you laugh. I remember one time I was leaving the improv and he, and, and I pulled out and he just flies, comes flying out of the front door and dives across the hood of my car. <laughs> and I'm driving off. I mean, I had to drive down the block and everybody's roaring laughing. There's Robin on the hood of my car as I'm driving off. I mean, he just drove perfectly. Yeah. He was like a stuntman. <laughs> and he just did it for a laugh and made a bunch of comics out front laugh. That was it. It wasn't anything to get paid. It wasn't a bit he was going to do in his act later. Oh, man, it's just the uh, that eternal quest for the next laugh. You know, Jerry Seinfeld has a great... He's like you were living from laugh to laugh. Well, how, what does he say? He says something along those lines. It's like, you know, it, it's it's like it's like air for us. Absolutely. You know, you go too long without a laugh and you start to suffocate. But, that's how I felt the other night. I mean, for me, I described it as a buzz, but I like I. I and I, that's the search for material because and I, I did this in I am comic, but I didn't fully explain it. But I you, you sing a song, you write a song. Right. You sing that song for the next 50 years. Right. Audiences want to hear that song. Oh, yeah. They want to hear Satisfaction of the Stones. They want to hear whatever it is. Yeah. But a joke, what's your next joke? It's like, next. Right, right. Not, yeah. not again. They right, don't go yeah. sing that again. They go, next. What's another one? Another yeah. one. Because So comics always had that drive to come up with new material. Right. If we're going to get our drugs, if we're going to get those laughs, yeah. you got to have new material. You can't come back with the same act. Or a new audience. Those or a new options. audience. Yeah. That's right. I mean, those are your options. That's it. Yeah. That's it. It's really changed. I mean, it's... it's. Uh, what do you think about guys who are putting out like a new special every year, every two years? What do you think about that? Amazing. Do you Amazing. Think that do you think the quality is still there? Some. Some aren't. Yeah. Some and some aren't, obviously. Yeah. I mean, here's the other thing. I, I would, I would want to know how much uh, help they're getting on the writing. Hmm. Right, but nobody ever talks about writers anymore. That's the other thing that ended with uh, Lenny Bruce and Mort Saul. The, the audience wants to believe that everything that the comic says comes out of their brain. Right, that's their whole cloth. Yeah, but you got to have help if you're going to write a new hour every year. You got to have some help. You got to <laughs> have some writing. I'd love to see the some of the the background on some of the the specials. Yeah, I know it'd be just interesting. I mean, I, I just watched the whole documentary on. Um, uh, Kevin Hart and he was you know part of his posse those guys are his writers they that's talked it. about it that's he, exactly he right. was very open about it that's like it. these guys are his writers but he's the performer that's right you know that's he right. also probably writes but he's the performer like, well you, 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 you're a writer but you need most mostly you need to be the editor you're Jack Benny right mm -hmm. huge back in the 30s right. and 40s he had all these writers but he's the guy the editor he's the one that makes it work he's right. the one that goes on stage we talked about there's a joke on a page hey that's a good joke but it's not quite there yet. Right. Right. He's the guy who has to take it on stage and find out how to edit it, cut it, get the language right. Maybe this word's off, whatever it is. Kevin Hart has to do that. He has to put it in his. Also, you could write for people, and I've written for a bunch of other comics. You know, I come up with a joke, it's in my language. Jeff Foxworthy, I wrote for Jeff Foxworthy. He'd have to change it over to his language. Right. 
Did you write the whole "You might be a redneck"? No, yes, you I wrote, no, <laughs> he had that well before. No, I, I know, came it's hilarious. Show. You know, yeah. J- you know, Jeff, you might be a redneck <laughs> if this. And next thing you know, like that's <laughs> his biggest thing. Yeah, no, I I did write a couple of those jokes. Oh yeah, the favorite one that I wrote of mine was if your work in television is sitting on top of your non-work in television, <laughs> you might be a redneck. <laughs> and I got that from my family. But I, 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 I look, I have a lot of admiration for him. Yeah, I mean, he built something there, and and he actually a new joke form. I mean, how many times have you heard that if you are, then you must be, which we all had that as in math in school. Right. Right. A theorem. Yeah, right. He took that. A squared plus B squared equals C squared. Must be. uh, If you're this, then you must be that. Ah, right. That's great. And so uh, he did that and turned it into a joke form where he doesn't even have to do the setup. He just does the punchline. Right. Yeah. That's set up once. Right. If you've ever been too drunk to fish, (laughs) <laughs> you might be a redneck. Yeah. He's doing the punchline and the setup. Yeah. And I've heard it in a million different forms, you know. A friend of mine. You might be a jet fighter pilot. I've heard it in every kind of possible way. A friend of mine here, uh, he has a t-shirt that he just made called You Might Be a Jewish Redneck If. And it's fucking brilliant. Like, right. And my favorite one, I, it's the only one I spoil because the rest of them are, are, worth, are worth reading. But it is my favorite one. He said, you might be a Jewish redneck if you're... Mother won't let you marry your sister because nobody's good enough for her little boy. <laughs> and I just fucking love that. And I told, I, I explained that joke to my daughter yesterday <laughs> and she's like, she's like, she's like, I don't get it. And I said, okay, well you got to understand like Jewish mothers love their sons. Like they like their daughters, but they love their sons. And she's like, yeah, but why are they marrying each other? I was like, oh, cause, re- cause rednecks do that. You know? And just, she's like, culturally lost on both ends of that. Yeah. 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 She, she was like, she didn't she, understand any of it. Yeah, yeah. You know? But she laughed. She thought it was funny, but she didn't know why it was funny. Like, it's just a funny idea. Like, your mother won't let marry your sister. But she didn't understand, like, the, you know, what went into the, the ingredients. She didn't understand the ingredients. He, you know, you, and, in my mind, way of thinking in the early 90s, when I talk about the balkanization of mm-hmm. comedy, you know, when people started being realizing they could, didn't have to go for the, the biggest everybody at once they could just pull out their demographic right. out of a, become the gay comedian or a Filipino comedian, whatever it is. Right. Foxworthy sort of broke that code. You know, he he was a comic. When he went north, uh, they said, you got to lose this accent. You can't get on television uh, with this accent. You know, you have to lose that southern accent. Right. He's like, I'm not going to lose it. And then he said, and then when he went out to perform in Michigan the first time, they said, you're not going to do well up there because there are no rednecks in Michigan. Right. And, of course, he, he, did great. He, he works at a comedy club. Um, I can't remember the name of it now. It was in a bowling alley. <laughs> This comedy club is in a bowling alley, and that's the first thing he said: is if your bowling alley has valet parking, you might be a redneck. <laughs> that was, I think, his first redneck joke that he started writing them up there. Oh, really? Because he got up there because there were rednecks everywhere. Yeah, and it's true. I mean, it wherever you true. go, obviously, no, you get outside of any town. Yeah, you know, there are and people. So, are this, people, there are people are country. Yeah, so he he stuck to his guns, and ended up, of course, pulling off the biggest demographic, his. Yeah, there's a there's a funny story. There's a, a, a Jewish comic who's opening up for him before Fox was doing theaters. Mm. He was just adding shows and comedy clubs. That happened if you got good enough. They add a couple of shows. You're drawing good enough, and of course right. you start cutting a door deal. So he started cutting door deals. So he may be doing 14 shows as opposed to eight. Right. In the punchline in Atlanta, and so one night he had up there, and the the uh, person who was writing the check said to figure out loud as he's writing the check and the middle act who was Jewish was sitting in a room and he goes, well, you're not 14 times funnier than me. <laughs> and Jeff says, no, but there are 14 times more rednecks out there than your people. Oh uh, yeah. 
<laughs> more than 14. Yeah, but no, yeah, no, no, yeah, but that's yeah, what he's that's saying. That's the point. Yeah, no, I get it. Yeah, yeah. I'm drawing that these people are coming in to see me. But you, yeah. you, you, it's not about so the, the point to me for all that would always like if you get paid more, you're funnier. And it's like, no, you're it's a business. It's yeah, a business. You got a bigger reach. Yeah. Yeah. That's real. That's interesting. I didn't think about that. There is this thing of thinking like, you know, you funniest should, wins. Yeah, but it's not. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. Oh, man. That's it's, no, yeah. no. Do you think there's a meritocracy to comedy? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And I don't think that any of these people are mistakes. You know, I don't think any of them are a mistake. He goes, that, that's a mistake. That person should never got there. Oh, they're there. It's not a mistake. Yeah. Those people think that person's the funniest. And so they're paying extra money to go see that person. Yeah. How can you say that's a mistake? It's so subjective. I never tell anybody. If they, they may say, I think this person's hilarious. I may not think that person's funny at all, but I never tell them they're wrong. Right. It's the most subjective thing. I think it's the most subjective thing in the world, sense of humor. Yeah. Oh, for sure it is. Yeah. Right. So, you know, how can anybody be wrong if they got it? You know, you don't like people who steal a lot. You don't like people who cheated their way there. But shit, in the old days, you could, every, there was so much shame involved in it. You could kind of always tell when somebody had a stolen joke, they'd look down at the floor. They didn't quite own it completely. Yeah. yeah you know what yeah. I mean? They didn't look at the audience and bask in the glow of that joke. They did that joke. got a little look to the side, look down. I'd go, ah, oh, there's a tell. There's a poker tell there. Yeah. And then you find out later, yeah, that joke was nipped. But now it's, just, it's, it's, it's so, there's so many comics. Yeah. We used to be able to police it. There were only like 400 comics. There were, there were only like 400 comics from the whole country in yeah. 1979. So you got policed more. It was easy to police it. You know, this guy got caught stealing um, in in New York City. A guy named uh, Adam Lesser. You don't know him. He he, he was, yeah. you know, we're all tends towards being sociopaths, but he was a real sociopath. <laughs> and he's and and um, we were all playing poker together. His friends, Mark Schiff, was a very funny comedian. Oh yeah, we we're playing poker together, and I go up to do Montreal. Now you couldn't go back in these clubs too soon because you couldn't turn your material over enough because right. the crowds were almost the same right especially early on in these clubs so i go up there and i'd spent like that almost a year before i got back up there you know enough material they kept come back come back i said not yet i'm not ready come back they go adam leslie was just here i said wasn't adam just here a couple months ago yeah he came back with a whole new act i go mm. really they start doing the act that's mark Schiff's joke that's mark Schiff's joke he did mark Schiff's entire act Oof. And the real tough part was Schiff was due there the week after. Oh. So I called Schiff. I said, look, man, you're going to have problems up here because I couldn't convince them that was not Adam Leslie's material. Wow. Like when Mark got up there, people came in the room. They go, the guy did that two weeks ago. That's I his a, stuff. I have a, there was a great story about with Spanky. He had uh, some kid in Florida had lifted his entire act. And, <laughs> and, uh, and he wasn't pretending he hadn't. He just didn't know it was wrong. Wait, and the club owner was like, "Hey, man, that's Spanky's act." He's like, "Yeah, I know. He's my favorite comic." <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> well, people start. You know, Rosie O'Donnell had that when she first started. People had to explain to her. She oh, was doing know. like Jerry Seinfeld material. She oh, goes, really? Yeah, I love him. He's great. She goes, "Yeah, but you can't do his act." <laughs> but she learned. Obviously, she yeah, learned. But yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah, people don't know. Yeah, but there's people who know. Oh yeah, no, this I, is great. I, yeah. I did once. I did. This is my book. I did. Uh, I was doing Atlanta punchlines on Sunday night. Now I watch the comics the first couple shows they do. Right. Once I track their act, I know yeah. what they're doing. I don't have to listen anymore because I'm not going to trip over anything they're doing. Right. 
So I'm listening to my Walkman, always listen to my Walkman music, getting psyched for the show. I just take the thing off to see where the guy is in his act. Right. Sunday night, last show of the week, I hear him do one of my bits, verbatim. I go, what? Another one, verbatim, another one. I mean, he did five, 10 minutes of my act, boom. Wow. Like I'm like, what? I run back, there was a little room off to the side of the stage. Right. It wasn't a green room. It was just a little holding area for the comics to wait before they get to walk through the audience to get there and then go on the stage. I've been there. The MC's like freaking out going, I know, I know, he's doing your act. I'm going to kill him, I'm going to kill him, motherfucker, he comes out, I'm going to kill him. And he, and it, he comes off, he comes up, he's all smiling, he sees me in the dressing room, I grab my bats him up against the wall, I go, you're doing my fucking, you're doing my act. He goes, hey, I'm sorry, man, I forgot you were here. <laughs> <laughs> So I got to go out. <laughs> oh, my God. That's hysterical. I, I got to go out. And now I know some of the stuff he took, right. but I don't know everything he did because right. I wasn't listening for the first 15 <laughs> minutes of his 25 minutes, right? And I'm tripping over jokes. I do, They go, the other comic did that joke. Uh, right? I come off stage. He was gone, long yeah, gone. I, I know his name. He's guy. From, he was a guy from Florida back. They never went anywhere. He never went anywhere. No one does. You can't. But he, you but, can't but make I, it. Yeah. I come off stage. You go. The, the MC goes, and the MC came on Facebook when I was writing these stories and posting them. On. He uh-huh. says, "I was the MC then." He oh, said, that's so. Oh funny. my God! I he said he he got his money. He drove out of there so fast. That's hilarious. Sure was, I forgot you were here. I, I had a comic the other night. I followed him the other night in that, in that nothing room, in the nothing mic, and he had gone up, and he actually had done really well. And, and, and he's been doing this for a while and, and it's not an easy art form. And some nights he does better than others. And he'd done really well that night, but I still shit on him for not doing well, you know? And I was like, cause these girls were laughing. I was like, well, I know you laughed at him. You'll laugh at anything, you know? And then he's like, Hey, I'm right here. I was like, I'm sorry. I thought you left. You know? <laughs> So, it was, I mean, and then I just, then I just like kept poking at him for the rest of the night, but I mean, we're friends and he, yeah, you yeah. know, I was like, dude, I was just playing. He's yeah, like, I know it's fine. You yeah, know, yeah. but, uh, that's a different context. Always context. Yeah. 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 I mean, you got like, I mean, look, I'm not, I'm not here to make enemies, you know, I'm like, nah. I'm just having fun. Um, so, uh, tell me what, like, uh, now you write for people. My biggest thing is like learning to keep my mouth shut. Like, I so often a comic will come off stage and I'll have five tags for them and I will just be like, Hey man, I thought of this. I thought, of, and they never appreciate it. You know, it's a whole different generational. That's another generational difference. When my day in my day was a sign of respect. Right. And you appreciate the help. It happened all the time in the showcase clubs in New York city. I remember this specifically one time I was in Pittsburgh uh, comedy club. It's yeah. like 1980, 81 and Gary, it must've been 81 cause Shanley had already done the tonight show. Uh-huh. And, Shanling was doing a private gig in town and he comes over to the comedy club and says, can I do a little time in the first show? I need like five minutes just work out some new stuff. Didn't go over five minutes. You could tell he's working out new stuff. I do my set. Then he says, can I do the second show? He says, absolutely. Right. When I finish my second show, right, Gary comes up to me with a stack of cocktail napkins with notes on it. That's so and cool. I'm like, whoa, man. And they were good. And I thought, this I, it was a good feeling. Thought, this yeah. guy's a big deal to me. And he cared enough about what I was doing to watch it and give me notes. I've done that when I first came back, started doing stand-up comedy again, like 10 years ago. Uh-huh. I'd go up to young comics, say, I got a note for you. they go, what? What are you saying about me, man? Did I messed up up there? What do you say? I mean, they got defensive. Yeah. And, and I went, oh, this is a different time. Yeah. And it's not the same. But, you know, that's a, uh, uh, look, I did it with Carlin. I told you that. Yeah. 
I did it with George Carlin. He was down Comedy Magic Club when he was doing his last two specials. Uh-huh. He'd, he'd worked the material out down there and a lot of comics, we were down there watching him. And most times you'd watch him one night and you'd see what he was doing. It was great. And then you didn't come back. And for whatever reason, I did two nights in a row doing one of them. I can't remember which one. The second night, I'm, I've am i kind of got a feel for the material and I'm writing notes. Right. And I'm writing, man. Yeah, I've yeah. got a bunch of cocktail napkins. I'm writing notes. George might like this idea. Here's yeah. a little joke idea for George Carlin. And I don't even think about it. I'm just like, like just excited to go backstage and, hey, George, how you doing? And good, good. I said, I got some of these notes here for you. You might, might, you might want to look at them. Maybe something that I did. You know, I actually did good handwriting. Yeah, you know? yeah. He goes, okay, man, puts them in his pocket. I go, a few minutes later, we all leave backstage. I go back out to the table where the comics were talking. And his brother, Patrick, comes over. Patrick was was George's muscle when he uh-huh. was young and, and George was in the neighborhood and being a wise guy and maybe his mouth wrote a check that he physically couldn't cover. Uh-huh. You know, Patrick made sure that George didn't get beat up or whatever. But anyway, he was, you know, he's a tough Irish streak guy. You can tell oh, yeah. you, you know, he's older. And he comes up to the table, he looks at me, he goes, hey, you, come here, man. I'm like, <laughs> what did I do? I'm in trouble with George, George's brother, Patrick. <laughs> I walk over, he goes, hey, uh, nobody ever gives my brother notes. But he said, they're okay. Said, Thanks. <laughs> That now I it. say that I don't know whether they really were okay or not. You know, right, could have been yeah. George said, "Tell them they're okay," and toss them in the trash as soon as I left the room. You know. Well, did you see? Did, did any of them make it into the? I monologue? never remembered any of them. Oh, okay. Never remembered. I saw, of course, the specials. Never remembered any of them. Didn't didn't think of that. Yeah. Um, uh, and I always love it when comics say, like, you know, they they word somebody and somebody said some famous person said, "You're yeah. funny." You know. Like, yeah. Of course, that's what you know. Like you said, we're not here to make enemies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. Like the comic worked in front of him. I opened up for him. He said I was funny. Of course. Yeah. There's a famous story. I can't even remember who the comic was, but the the opening act did the 20 minutes. Just did great. Just killed. Yeah. So it was Red Fox or somebody. Comes on stage. He goes, grabs the guy before he leaves. Puts his arm around and says, I'm another hand here. Another <laughs> hand for Jason Schultz. I'm another hand for Jason. Another hand for Jason. Keep out. They kept applauding. Right. Come on, one more hand for Jason. About five times, right? And he finally lets him go and he does his act. And afterwards, the guy goes up. He says, man, thanks a lot, man. I'm all that. He said, no, no, I was just cleaning you off. <laughs> I was going to make sure they were finished with you. So they wouldn't think of you anymore. They oh, heard yeah. enough of your name and saw enough of you. I was just cleaning you off so I could start fresh. Oh, that's great. <laughs> I love that. I had a guy recently. Um, he's awesome. He's uh, he's a North Carolina comic, but he tours around. He's really funny. And uh, his name is Cliff Cash, and I've worked with him a few times. And Great name. And uh, yeah, it's great name and it's his real name and he does a whole thing about you know it's part of his redneck resume and and uh this is that's him he says that about himself and um anyway i've i've opened for him a few times and he's always been really generous and the last time i i opened for him i had my best set opening for him and i go back in the green room and he puts his arm around me he's like you'll get him next time <laughs> like <laughs> oh god it was so perfect you know and like i laughed and then i was also like but i thought i did well you know like as a comic dude, i just can't help but be a little insecure even when things go well i'm like is did he mean that you know <laughs> like, mean that so yeah but it was great he's really he's really funny cool. um so tell me a couple, and we can wrap up soon. I just, okay. I'm loving talking to you, man. Thanks. Um, we can do this another time. I'll come back. Great. Well, that's, <laughs> I mean, I'm down, dude. You got, I mean, you are a fountain of stories. So I yeah, mean, yeah, I'm, I got I stories. Will, we can do this as many times as you yeah. want to get nah, your whole 
get your whole uh, as if you haven't told your stories enough. But you haven't <laughs> no, told I mean, them enough. To I mean, me. got into my stories yet? <laughs> All right. Well, the next time we'll focus on your stories. But tell me a little bit about like I know you've done the Tonight Show. You yeah. with Johnny with Jay. I mean, yeah. how how many comics can say they've done the Tonight Show with both Johnny? There, and there Jay? are a few. I'm sure there are a few. Not a lot because yeah. the transition happened and and Jay wanted to go you know a different direction. Obviously, even go younger comics. So fortunately, I I did four of him before I started writing for TV full time and then it was I wasn't doing stand up for a while but I did uh, I think like I think my count was like 14 with Johnny and 4 with Jay and then I did about 8 or 10 Letterman shows at the time when he was on NBC that's amazing man yeah a lot of them we were doing we were doing everything back then you know I was doing Merv Griffin in the daytime before I did Carson he did a bunch of Merv Griffin it was sort of like the minor leagues to build up to it that was out in LA and there were shows, but back then everybody was putting comics on every kind of show. Right. I did. There was a, there was a, a, a geez, there were so many different shows that uh, Solid Gold Dance Show. I did stand up comedy on that. I actually did stand up comedy on American Bandstand. Oh, really? Like they, that they warm up I, the crowd? Or? Oh my God, it was disastrous. <laughs> it was, I guess you know Dick Clark had in his mind this was a you know it was the White Soul Train or the right. Soul Train was the black. American Bandstand, whatever. But it was just a dance show. They yeah. bring music out and dance to it, and kids. And he had it in his mind. Comedy was so big in the mid late '80s right. that they were putting on everything, right? And everybody wanted a little stand up comedy on their show. So um, uh, he said, I, "I was in the first batch. I don't even know how many batches they did. I don't think it did did more than three or four of us." And so I I go on stage, and he, he's, he's on this stage platform he's right on like he's a little further away than you are right now but yeah. he's still there behind this like acrylic lectern right like a clear glass lectern he's standing there and i'm up here on stage right. start doing my stand up to the side now all the kids are getting together come on they just finished dancing so they're all kind of like you know catching their breath and i start doing my thing i do two jokes nothing i get nothing he says he he just goes stop 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 he's got this mic right, right. stop stop I stopped. Rich, stop a minute. He says, hey, kids, 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 this is a very funny man. When he talks, you laugh. <laughs> they took it literally. Yeah. I start talking. They start laughing. They're laughing through the setup. Of course, they can't keep laughing. Now they're catching their breath. They're laughing through, I don't know where the joke is, the punchline. They're just laughing. They're just laughing. And then it's like a, a <laughs> then somebody else starts, <laughs> and it's just sporadic laughing attached to nothing for five minutes. It was that's, horrible. Yeah, that's terrible. Yeah, it was weird. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's weird. Like it's 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 always a trip to me when audiences don't understand comedy. Like you know, they it's I mean it's flattering that they laugh at the setup, but it's also like I'm I'm building something here, you know. And it, like it, I did a joke the other night where they laughed at the setup, and then the the, the punchline got zero, like zero. <laughs> I had to I had to pretend it wasn't there. I mean, I shouldn't have even said it, but I was like. You know, the joke, and maybe it's not hilarious, is like, but it's I'm building into something else. I'm like, you know, like most men in Asheville, I'm a single dad, you know? And they thought that was a fucking right. Like, I killed them on the setup. I'm like, oh, well, that was a setup. The, you know, I'm supposed to, the next line is, and this is my single dad bod, which, you know, like, I think it's a little bit funny. And I'm leading up to this whole thing about the working setup with is the funny in the context. Here, they go, all these loser guys that can't stay in relationships, can't stay married. Right. Yeah. They that, just they that, just thought that, that was so fun. That's you. You. You obviously hit upon an an Asheville truth. I, I'm a, yeah. Right. To, well, to these people, you know. To, I mean, who knows? I don't. You were in Asheville, right? Well, yeah, but I'm not sure they were all from Asheville. It was uh, it was a John. I was opening for John Reap, and he's from Hickory. Oh, John Reap. Yeah. 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 He's yeah. amazing. He's yeah. he's really funny, and uh, 
And so a lot of his friends and family come from Hickory and Lenore and all these surrounding Where was towns. he at? Where was this last night? Where was this? When was this? Where Last night, right? No, this is a month ago at, oh. uh, at the Orange Peel. At the Orange this Peel. is the set I want to send you. Yeah. Just, yeah. To, just so you can I'd see the Orange Peel. I'd love to see it. I'd love to see it. You have, yeah. you send me, I'll send you uh, the ebook when I get home and then you can send me the link to this. Okay. Yeah. So I'd love to see it. That's a fair trade. <laughs> if you're kind enough to watch 15 minutes of my material, you don't have to watch the whole 15. You tell me when you bail out. That'll be great for me to know. <laughs> you know, I got through seven. It was funny. Like, that's how I'll know. <laughs> You know, com- you know, there's like I said, there are comics that that, that I would I cross the street to see, but right. most I wouldn't. Yeah. And somebody said that uh, you want to watch, but I watched so many Netflix specials to get current again. You know, yeah. To, oh, to, yeah. To, to catch up, right? And uh, uh, there's so many great comics out there. There's so many. Great- so there are many. more comics doing theaters now than ever before. Yeah, it's there, huge. Like you just talked about the Orange Peeler. There are yeah. more comics who are draws than ever before. Oh, yeah. Of various size theaters all the way up to Kevin Hart Coliseum style. Oh, it's crazy. I can't imagine doing comedy for 10, 20,000 people. Like, how is that? It's not, you're, 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 again, it's a whole different thing. Yeah. And Steve Martin says he was no longer doing comedy. He was just conducting an orchestra. Yeah. That's what he was doing. Right. And you know, you, you've done this before and I did like opening up for bands. I opened up for some big bands, Chicago back in the seventies and some of these bands that would draw seven, 10,000 people. Right. You have to wait for the laugh to come in. It right. takes time. Yeah. It takes so much time. When you think you've heard the laugh up front, the laughter coming from the back is like another wave coming over yeah. the top. So you have to wait because I'd be starting my setup while the laughter was still coming in from the joke before. Yeah. So Kevin Hart, these guys, I mean, I don't know how many guys are like that, but someone like Kevin Hart, now comedy's best, obviously, in a smaller venue. Yeah. That's why those jazz rooms are great. I mean, look at uh, the, the two specials that Chappelle put out. The one was up in the belly room at the comedy store. That's like 70, 80 people. It was amazing, yeah. Right, that's, you can't get more intimate than that. And his performance was intimate. He sat down yeah. discussing why he quit. Yeah. The it was show yeah. was incredible. Yeah. But that was the perfect venue for that right. performance. And then the next special, he's in a regular theater. Right. Right. But yeah. that was the perfect it wasn't a big theater, but it was you know, it, it he's was, done some pretty big I mean He can. Like, yeah. I'm just saying they taped it. He taped it in a in a much bigger venue than the, right. the belly room right, at the right, comedy right. store. Yeah. No, he's uh I mean, he's well. That's a guy who understands everything about his craft. It's right. amazing. He's right. he is phenomenal. Truly. So cool, man. Well, listen, let's do a part two if you don't mind. I, I just I to. feel like I can't keep you anymore, but man, I'd, I'd love, love to. to. Um, yeah, we're going to see Ron White tonight. Oh, that's so great. So yeah, are you friends with him? I mean, yeah, are, yeah. I are you gonna Are you gonna do? Is he gonna let you do time? No, I'm not going there. Would to you do want time. to? No. Would he let me do a five minute guest spot? I opened up for him when I wrote for him. I opened for him. Oh yeah, yeah. It's you know again it's that feeling. I never had that feeling yeah. in my career. If you say, "Hey, you have any regrets?" I never had that feeling where I walk out and there are two thousand people who pay a lot of you. money to see me. Yeah. I I you, I realize the fun of just making two thousand people laugh. Right. But the, you know, I I do out do my set whether I was opening for Foxworthy or for Ron White or whoever when I was working with Bill Maher, whoever I was working with at the yeah. time like that, and open for them, and then I I'd, I'd go off and then they'd come out. And the place would go crazy. Yeah. And you go, I never got that feeling. Yeah. Because I had to earn it from whatever crowd I was working for. They didn't know who I was. You know, it's, it's a whole different feeling when you have to like win them over as opposed to they just paid a hundred bucks to see you. They are on your side. They're into seeing you walk out right now. 
That's incredible. So that'd be probably the only thing I can think of in my career that I never had that I would go, that's what I would want to feel, have that feeling. That was truly incredible. Um, I can't even say enough good things about Rich Scheidner. And he's just so fucking hilarious, and he's got so many incredible stories. So I'm sure you enjoyed this one. I know I did. And definitely when his project comes out on Netflix, we will let you know, or whatever it is that comes of it. I know he's going to try to film it. I think it's something that's got real legs, so it's something that might be in the uh, public sphere. But if he's coming to you, he's coming to Atlanta, he's coming to some places, we'll try to make his dates available on the Learning to Fail podcast website and everything else. So you know what to do now. Go to iTunes, wherever you get your podcast. like, subscribe, review, rate. Please give us five stars for how awesome we are. And uh, if you feel like it, if you're feeling like your cup runneth over, go to our donate page and press the button and just keep pressing it until you're broke. All right? Uh, the most important thing is that you listen and share with your friends and help us grow. But uh, the second most important thing is that you donate if you can. Give it if you got it. And, and take it if you don't. Just enjoy what we do here. Uh, this is my way of giving back to the world. And it's really a privilege for me to be able to sit one-on-one -on -one with people like Rich. I mean, how am I going to get audience with these kinds of people otherwise? Uh, but we turned out to strike up a real friendship. And we actually, uh, on the way home, I gave him a ride back to his house. And we talked about some possible projects we might want to do together. So that's just the way it happens, man. Uh, you meet good people and you try to come from the right place. And I'm not saying I always succeed and you just never know uh, what doors are going to open. So I'm pretty excited about having met Rich and I'm really excited about possibly working with him and I can't wait to see what he's doing. I mean, I'm so intrigued and he's such a great natural storyteller, really funny guy. And uh, he had a few closing words. So I'm going to cut to those in a minute. In the meantime, thank you, Bruce Sales, for being my ever patient producer and doing such a nice job of making this sound balanced and professional because without you this is just one dude shouting into a microphone occasionally accompanied by another human being and uh, i really appreciate the art you put into making this thing great so thank you bruce and thanks all of you for listening and thank you rich for being my guest today it's a pleasure to meet you yeah you too um i can see why uh how you made it you're extremely fucking likable <laughs> off stage and I bet you're likable on stage too, and that's what it takes. You gotta be, you, you gotta be likable on and off stage, and uh, um, and I'm learning that the hard way. It's, um, it's it's the whole game. Yeah, you don't laugh at somebody you don't like. I know. I mean, you laugh at them if they fall down a manhole. <laughs> but, I mean, you don't laugh with them. I seriously think this is one of my favorite conversations I've had since I started learning to fail. Rich is just amazing, a wealth of stories and generosity, and I've gotten to know him a little bit more since recording this interview, and he's just amazing. Like, he's invited me to do some shows possibly with him, he's asked me to help produce some shows in the South, he's helping me record, well, he's helping me plan a performance I'm doing in May, I'm going to be doing my first i guess i don't know if it's my first i'm trying to do an album recording and i'm gonna video it and everything and you know if it goes well enough then i'll be able to release it i, I don't know if it will but i'm gonna pretend that it will and so i'm making it an album recording event and trying to get a lot of people to come it's a pretty good way to get people to come who've seen me a bunch of times <laughs> is to tell them i'm recording an album and then of course they want to be there for that hopefully so 
Anyway, uh, I asked Rich somewhat playfully if he'd help me get ready for it, and he was totally into it. And that's just the thing about him that I'm learning is he's, I don't know if it's a phase of life or it's just who he is as a guy, but his instinct toward generosity is unmatched. And it's just such a great thing to learn from. I mean, it's so easy to be like, hey, what do I need? What's in it for me? Be selfish. And I don't even think people mean to be selfish. I know I never mean to be selfish. I just have a need and I try to get it met. And I, my friends will attest I have a lot of needs. <laughs> um, and, and he's this guy who's like just figured out that it's not about taking and requesting. It's about giving. And he's incredibly generous. At least he has been with me. And he wants to work with the Asheville comedy community here and like volunteer his time to coach other comics and I'm trying to convince him that you know he should do it once or twice and then after that I'm not sure he's going to be so happy doing it for free but maybe I'm wrong like maybe he just wants to give back and I just I don't know man I find that really refreshing so I loved meeting him and I loved talking to him and I hope to get him back here and I hope you enjoy the conversation I want to give a special shout out to my producer, Bruce Sales from Two Bruce Studios in Asheville. He's the guy who makes this sound as good as it does. And my sponsors, who are me and my companies, Real Change Films and Marquee Comedy and Three Minute Egg. If you're into yoga, go to ThreeMinuteEgg.com and buy some yoga eggs so I can continue to spend that money on all the things that interest me. And if you like comedy, go to MarqueeComedy.com and find out when our next shows are happening and come to a show and if you like spiritual information and documentaries then go to realchangefilms.com and you can watch some of the interview clips I've done with some really great spiritual teachers and stuff so I've got a lot of things that interest me and uh, mostly I'm fascinated with the guitar I'm really terrible at it but I like collecting guitars so I justify buying guitars I don't need by hanging them on the wall and calling them art I think it's reasonable. All right. I will look forward to the next time we get together. And thank you so much for listening. Tune in. Share this with your friends. Uh, it would be great if you feel at all inclined to donate. You can donate some money on our donation page on learningtofail.com or ltfpod.com. I don't know. You know what? If you go to jasonshoulder.com, J-A-S-O-N-S-C-H-O-L-D-E-R, Com. If you go to jasonshoulder.com, you can find everything. That's just one website where you can find everything that I'm doing and you can click into different universes from there. I finally got that built. And now, of course, all the pieces need to be fleshed out better. But anyway, that's a good place to start. And uh, go to richscheidner.com if you want to see some old clips from him uh, performing on The Tonight Show. Really, really cool. I mean, I just it was just so great. So ever since I did this interview, I've started getting to know him more behind the scenes. And so I started watching some of his Tonight Show clips. I'm going to start reading his book that he was generous enough to give me. And oh, and I forgot to tell you this. Um, I mentioned in the podcast that I was going to send him a clip of me opening for John Reap at the Orange Peel. And I did that. And he listened to it twice. And then he spent an hour on the phone with me, giving me notes and feedback on my set. So I don't know if you can imagine what an incredible act of generosity that is, but it's, it's extremely generous. And 
It's just a really amazing thing for a comic who's been doing comedy for 40 years to take the time to deconstruct and analyze the set of someone who's been doing it for five years or four years. You know, I'm sort of in the almost four, a little over four and a half year range. And so I just feel like what a gift it is that this guy has come into my life. And I really hope to continue building a relationship with him and hope to bring him back to talk to you guys some more and share some more stories. So, all right, this has now gotten long and I don't mind because I've got a lot to say. And I will see you guys soon. LearningToFail.com. Donate. Go on to iTunes and all those places and rate and review us. Please subscribe. Tell your friends to subscribe. Just tell people to listen. It's a great podcast. I love it. And uh, I have some new ideas for some new podcasts that I'm going to share with you another time. All right. Adios. Adios.